Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Booster Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Fishing and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC. Who's who? Hello, and welcome to the 11th episode of Who's Who in the DC Universe, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag, and along me, as always, is my co-host, the esteemed Rob Kelly. How you doing, buddy? It's been so long. Since we've done one of these. Well, we did the Who's That not too terribly long ago. That, that was like five months ago. <laughs> and this episode has been a long time in the, in the making because Rob and I have uh, planned to record this and had to postpone because Rob had his hair getting – was getting his hair done. And we've had all kinds of delays. But we are here now and we are excited because this is a hell of a great issue. Let me tell you, there are a ton of Justice League International characters in this one. So I am super stoked about covering this one. I hope you are too. Uh, you know, I'm I'm excited to be one episode closer to the end of Huso. Oh my gosh! Well, see, what's happened, folks, is Rob was passionate about the classic Huso, and the 1990s version doesn't quite do it for him. So he's gotten really whiny in these last few months or last few episodes. Yeah, that, yeah, that's a recent development with me. <laughs> Well, to, to put Rob out of his misery, why don't we start talking about this thing? So, folks, we are here, yes, to cover Who's Who in the DC Universe. This is the Loose Leaf edition, specifically from the year 1991. Now, this was a 16-issue miniseries, and we are in issue 11. So we are most of the way through this miniseries. And it cost $4.95 an issue, which was outrageous for $19.91. It's crazy. But it came in this awesome Loose Leaf format where you could tear out each individual page, and you could put them in any order you wanted. There's 24 entries per issue, which by the way, that is relevant for this episode, that there's 24 entries per issue. We'll talk about that in a minute. (laughs) And um, as you go through the who's who, this version of who's who, which is why Rob hates it, is really focused on the current DC universe at that time. Because by 1991, (laughs) Rob had already decided he was an old man and was sitting there at the Cuber school going, get off my lawn! And had already given up up on comics. So as we go through the entries, I'm going to describe the pieces for you. On the front side, you're going to have a piece of art. On the back side, you're going to have all that cool stuff like height, weight, you know, history, powers, all that jazz. And each sheet, and this is this is Rob's favorite part, each sheet is labeled with this border, and it has a color identifying how you might categorize these. And I love in the feedback when people tell us how they categorize their books. And we've got red for hero and black for villain and blue for supporting cast, and then there's plaid just to annoy Rob and all these different different types of <laughs> color borders you can use. Anyway, and our goal, of course, is to uh, cover this, uh, t- explain it to you enough so you don't have to have it directly in front of you. But if you want to see some of the images, is there a place they could go, Rob, to see some of these images? That would be fireandwaterpodcast.com. Excellent, yes. And uh, there we'll post a a smattering of them for you to take a look at. Or you can dig out your binders. Just please don't try and balance the binders while you're riding a bicycle. It's just a bad idea. It's happened to a few of our listeners, and I I visited some of them in the hospital, and I don't want to have to do that again. Now, uh, we want you to also go on the social medias. We want you to talk about these issues. We want you to talk about these characters. There's Justice League International characters in here, and I want to hear your thoughts. So go on the social medias. Use our hashtag, poundfwpodcast, and please let us know what you think. And 
also go on our website, the one Rob mentioned a minute ago, and leave your comments there. Now, we are going to be getting into issue 11 in a minute, but before we do that, Rob, we should probably take a moment to thank our sponsors. Folks, this episode of the Who's Who podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collector editions, all for up to 42% off with shipping for order uh, and free shipping for orders of $50 or more. Now, we try to pick selections that are related to this issue of Who's Who. Here's where we find out if Rob bothered to do his homework or not, folks. Rob, what'd you bring? Well, I don't read these issues before we do them, so I'm just <laughs> guessing that this character is in the book. I hope so. No, Fair no, enough. no. Of course. The, the car- based on a listing in this book, uh, I have Batman 66 Omnibus Hardcover, oh. uh, which collects the Batman 66 series number 1 through 30. Uh, which of course is an right. That's a it's a huge book, and it's an of course it's an adaptation that uh, the comic itself is is a comic book version of the '60s TV series. Now, many of you are saying, which character are we talking about? Well, I'm talking about Two Face. And then for those of you who remember the Batman TV show, you're like, wait a minute, Two Face wasn't in the Batman TV show. Ah, but he almost was. And a couple of years ago, they adapted the Harlan Ellison story idea into a comic book drawn by none other than Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. Praise and be that's, his name. I was taking a drink pub- when you did that to me. <laughs> no, okay. Thanks for being ready. And uh, that was pu- and so that was published as Batman 66, The Lost Episode, and that is in this book as well. So this is the Batman 66 Omnibus Hardcover. The normal price is $125. <laughs> the in-stock trades price, though, is $71.25. That's 43% off. So you could – if you bought just this book, you would get free shipping automatically. Wow. Uh, this is such a fun series. The cover is by Martin Anson, and it is trippy as hell. It is gorgeous. <laughs> and this this was a really fun series it's by Jeff Parker, Mike Woo-hoo! Allred, Laura Allred, and Jonathan Case. It was a really great book. And that, um, that Two-Face story was superb. That is a damn shame that never got transferred uh, into live action. It's just an amazing, uh, amazing, amazing story. So, yeah, Batman 66, omnibus hardcover. Well, first off, I just got to say Jeff Parker is one of my favorite writers in comic books today. He is absolutely amazing. I've told him to his face how much I loved his stuff. He then filed a restraining order. He did invite me out to, for a drink, though, too. But anyway, it's a whole weird story. Um, it's mixed signals. Uh, right, yeah. And all of that is – almost all of that was true, by the way. Um, so I have a question for you about that particular collection. Is it – because you said it's an adaptation of the TV series. Um, did they actually adapt episodes that aired or were they original no. stories? No, it's original stories okay, set, in set, set in the world of the okay. Batman 96 TV series. That was my understanding as well. I just was misunderstanding yeah. from your poor yeah. explanation, so that makes sense. Okay, thank you. Uh, I brought uh, a, a collected just edition. Just let it go. Right, yeah, well, it's probably for the best. Also related to this issue, I brought Green Lantern Corps Hardcover Volume 1, Beware Their Power. This is written by Steve Englehart and Alan Moore, mostly Steve Englehart, though. Uh, art by Joe Staten and various other artists, covers by Joe Staten. And this collects the Green Lantern Corps series from the 1980s, issue 207 to 215, and Tales of the Green Lantern Corps, annual number two. Probably put that in there just so they could say Alan Moore contributed to it. Anyway, uh, full page count of 264 pages. And this collects the series that came out when the Green Lantern Corps was down to, like, I don't know, seven or eight people and they were living here on earth in a beach house and uh, you know they were keeping it real and that's when guy gardner was really uh, a mainstay of the green lantern Corps, you know the, the the group here on earth and it was before the justice league era uh, just like international era it is super fun i loved these issues of green lantern Corps. i actually fell in love with kilowog reading this run when he went over to russia and helped build the uh the the the, the rocket red brigade and all that stuff super fun normally goes for 39.99 in stock trades price is 23 dollars and 19 cents you can get it for 42 percent off so you can get all of these 
at InStockTrades.com. Please go out there uh, and visit them and patronize them and let them know that the Fire and Water Podcast sent you. Uh, sent you. Now, Rob, we have another set of sponsors this month we should talk about, don't we? Yeah, the money is rolling in here at the Fire and Water Podcast <laughs> Network, of course. Uh, this episode is also sponsored in part with your Patreon support. Running the Fire and Water Podcast Network with so many shows requires a lot of online hosting and other services at bail. For the last three years, uh, the hosts have absorbed these costs, but the costs have grown considerably, so we've launched a Patreon for the network. If you're enjoying the Who's Who podcast, the best way to support the show is by visiting patreon.com slash fwpodcast and consider supporting the Fire and Water Podcast Network. At certain sponsorship tiers, you'll get mentioned on your favorite Fire and Water shows just like these folks. So big thanks to Christopher M. Leiden, Damian Whiter, Daniel Budnick, David A. Gutierrez, Gord Tolton, Jeremiah Jones-Goldstein, Michael O'Brien, Nathan Archer, Paul Kenzel, and Tom Panarese. Again, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. Awesome. All right. Well, let's get into this, buddy. Who's who? This, this is what they came for right here. Who's who? Number 11, starring Guy Gardner. And you know how I know that? Because across the top of the page, the cover, it says this issue starring, and then in giant letters, Guy Gardner, in the little tiny letters, and others, which just cracks me up. It's totally leaning into the Guy Gardner sort of ego thing. It reprints the, the image from the Guy Gardner entry, which we'll talk about. But then they've even added another thing in the bottom right-hand corner, where Guy is using his lantern ring to fold back the cover of the book and guys there written by Joe, uh, drawn by Joe Staten going issue number 11 how come I wasn't in issue number one <laughs> which totally cracks me up I find it hilarious so it's a uh, good gag I, I like it when they tweak with the format so exactly. it's, that's funny and the, and um, the thing about again tweaking with the formula, formula as you mentioned, it, where it says this issue starring Guy Gardner across the top, every issue before this always said all new art and entries in original loosely format. Well, starting this issue, that's gone. It will have a different tagline at the top of every issue going forward. So that's a that's a format change here as well. So super fun. Now I want I did mention earlier that it was important for you to know there are 24 characters in each issue of Huzu. Now why is that, Rob? Why is it important to know there's 24 characters? I, I, why? I don't know. I don't okay. know the answer to that question. Thanks for paying attention the last uh, 16 or 11 months. Anyway, uh, on this cover, if you count up the number of names, there's only 23 names listed on this cover. Oh, I see. Okay. Yes. I, I, I'm not counting the names on the cover. Well, God. that's how you figure something out that's important. So if you have your binders at home and you were planning to follow along by looking at the cover of issue 11, you would have missed an entry, specifically the entry for a character named Sudden Death, whose name is not listed on this cover, but was in fact in this issue. So they, somehow they accidentally left him off the cover, so that's why you only have 23 names instead of 24 names on the, on the cover, and that was sort of a mystery entry. No one could, no one was really sure which book it was in until uh, Paul Hicks actually is the one who brought it to my attention that this is the issue where it belongs. So thanks for that, Paul Hicks. You Dear were- Bob Greenberger, I would like a corrected copy sent to my house with <laughs> sudden death listed on the cover. Thank you very much. That that leads us right into our letters page. Thank you so much. <laughs> uh, there's not a lot to mention about the letters this time. I mean, they're all perfectly fine. I mean, it's, there's no Chris Franklin letter. I mean, that would have been something. No, but no. but uh, Michael Yuri does mention in the uh, – interestingly enough, he mentions that he has decided to uh, keep Who's Who because he was editing it. He started – he launched the Who's Who loosely, loosely format, and then an issue or two ago, he welcomed us to these new editors who were taking over for him. We joking, we joked even said it took like three editors to take over for him, but now 
now he says he's keeping his baby. So I wonder, did he fire those other guys or did it just not work out? I, I don't know quite what the backstory is on that one. But uh, And then I thought it was interesting. In one of the letters, they address religion and how religion is addressed in some of the entries. And they said that that's a sign of maturity. I thought that was sort of interesting that the comic was willing to embrace the fact that they can acknowledge when a character has a religious belief. And I, I think that it is kind of smart and sort of forward thinking to acknowledge and to not hide from it, you know? So I like that. I, I also like the offhand mention that Captain Marvel is now officially a DC character at the, in the last mm-hmm. letter. It was kind of, instead of being licensed, he's finally actually part of the DC universe in perpetuity. Awesome. And he isn't called Captain Marvel anymore because of that. So No, that's right. <laughs> All right. Let's get into our first entry. It is Big Barda by Adam Hughes and Carl Story, and it is amazing. So in the foreground on the right-hand side, you've got a, a shot, a full – well, not a full-body shot, but from head to maybe about her knees, a Big Barda. She's in her costume. It's you know, it's amazingly illustrated by Adam Hughes. She looks beautiful. She looks tough. She's got the mega rod, and it's glowing with this really great bright glowing effect. Um, and then behind her – actually. Almost, almost a serpent, Rob. Almost a serpent. You see uh, a Barda's face without the costume, and then you see her uh, in her little tiny bikini uh, holding up her husband, Mr. Miracle, who's bound up in chains, and they're clearly at the circus there. And also in the background, you see the planet Apocalypse with its fire pits. Uh, what do you think of the cover? Or I always call it the cover. I'm sorry. What do you think of the art? Oh, it's. I mean, Adam Hughes drawing any woman is already a winner, uh, and then uh, especially drawing Brig Barda because it's he gets to show off. He gets to put her in very very skimpy clothing, but of course she's showing off her muscles. It's, mm-hmm. it's, I mean, it's cheesecake certainly, but it's it's a different kind of cheesecake. Uh, and as, as I'll say, as much as I love the, the the front image, my favorite one is actually the back of her lifting up the van to to rescue the little kitten. Aww. And the way she just the way she leans over everybody because she's huge. Yeah. Uh, it mentions her. She's six two. And so I just I love how she's leaning into the frame there, and then of course her hugging Scott is great. It's it's a great listing, and this is one of these characters that was always you know in the periphery of the DC universe. I mean, she's created by Jack Kirby, she's a new new gods character, but really has become kind of a much bigger deal thanks to I think uh, sort of uh, you know new new women fans coming into the comic books and discovering this character, this powerful character, and now she's kind of a much bigger deal. Well, and I want to give some credit to Just League International for putting her in that book and making her uh, a character of note and then spinning off the Mr. Miracle series originally by the, the Just by um, J.M.D. Mateus and making her a regular because she had been sidelined since the 70s, really. And so they started the ball rolling and then other people have done so much with her that, yeah, she's absolutely a big deal. She she was even in, um, what do you call that, the DC Superhero Girls show, which you know was oh, directly right. yeah. targeted at young girls and she was a big deal in that. So that's great. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned uh, Jack her we created by because Jack does get credit for creating her here in this, which is wonderful. And uh, the borders red for hero. First appearance is all the way back in Mr. Miracle number four, which was 1971. And um, so the deal with her, if you don't know her origin, folks, I'll just go through her super quick. She's from Apocalypse. She was uh, taken care of by Granny Goodness in the orphanages. She was leader of the female Furies. Then uh, she ended up rebelling from that group, came to Earth and hooked up with Scott Free, eventually, who's Mr. Miracle, eventually marries him. And uh, this art, this piece really talks more about their recent adventures because you know, they had the Mr. Miracle ongoing series where they were living in ba- Bailey, New Hampshire. And so this focuses a lot on that. Now, 
and, and I know you already know this part. I always find this fascinating, though, is when Jack Kirby created Big Barda, sort of one of the inspirations he used was uh, Lainey – I don't know if I'm saying your name right – Kazan? Is that right? Yeah, Lainey, Lainey Kazan. Yep. yep. And she had appeared in Playboy shortly before this, and that was sort of an inspiration for the physique of Big Barda, you know, this very large – forgive the expression. I, I Big bone would be a way to put it, but just a large frame woman who's still beautiful and sexy, though. And so uh, that's that's what he based her on. And, and I, I didn't know the name. And I, I looked her up. Sure enough, she's extremely well known nowadays for being in you know my big fat Greek wedding. So um, yeah. she, she's still out there doing stuff. And Mark Evanier, who was Jack Kirby's assistant, once said that uh, Scott and Bardo were sort of jokingly based on Jack Kirby and his wife's relationship. So I think that's kind of funny. Mm. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Makes you wonder what Jack thought about that. So some things that I love about Barta that they introduced in the Justice League International era and they and they really played up in in the ongoing series was her in the housewife kind of role where there's a lot of comedy gold to be found in this battle-hardened warrior trying to fit in in suburban America and how she was just so bound and determined to make it work because she never loses a fight. And so in her opinion, she was going to make this work, and it was just hysterical. And they even they, they pick on it here in the powers. They even mention how she uh, her deadliest weapon is probably her cooking, which has been known to make even the strongest man cringe. <laughs> so uh, Kevin Dooley wrote the text, who was the uh, assistant editor on a lot of the funny Justice League books at the time. So one other thing worth noting here is under group affiliations, Justice League International is not listed. Which I find surprising because she appeared in so many issues. But technically, I guess she was never a member. Does that track with you? I don't remember her ever being a member. But, of course, during that book, the membership was very loose. Like there was no – you know, it wasn't like the old series where they made a big deal about where you joined the, the team. And the, the new book, it was like people just came and go left and left and right. So I don't, I don't know. Well, I, it bothers me. I mentioned in a recent JLI podcast, and I'm curious from feedback from you guys at home if you thought – because I just assumed she was a member of the JLI. I've got her action figure in my JLI collection. That's where it belongs. But – Anyway, it, uh, it's weird. It's, it's weird that it lists the new gods as a group affiliation because, like, I didn't really think that that was a team. That was the name of the book. Good point. But, like, I didn't know that it was like a t- you know like an actual team name. The, yeah. the female Fury Battalion, yeah, but the new gods, I didn't really think that was a thing. Yeah, they could have said something about New Genesis, maybe. You know, like a, yeah. being part of a, a some, you know upper society of New Genesis. But yeah, that's a yeah. good point. Huh. Well, at this point, uh, the Mr. Miracle series had just been canceled the month before this. Very sad. And she had appeared rec- uh, most recently, though, in the Justice League International Annual, which was tied in at Armageddon 2001. So uh, for more on Big Barda, the best place would probably be, oh, I don't know, a little self-promotion, self-promotion folks. Uh, Justice League International Blah Ha podcast would be a great place to hear more about Barda, especially since we're talking about her on the uh, current episodes. All right. Moving on. Mm-hmm. All right. Up next is the Boom Tube, which you can tell because it's written in giant letters, Boom Tube. And this is the travel conveyance device that the new gods use to get from place to place. Not a lot to say here, folks. So I'm going to run Mark through this. Wade, Mark Wade had very little to say about right. the Boom Tube. <laughs> very little text. Uh, the drawing itself is by um, Will Blyberg and uh, Rick Hoberg. Sorry, Rick Hoberg and Will Blyberg, who were doing the new gods book at the time, so it made sense that they drew this. You've just got several new gods characters coming at you. You've got High Father, you've got uh, Orion, you've got Lightwave, you've got Metron, you've got Mr. Miracle, and then you have the new female Forager. Or bug, whichever name you prefer. And uh, again, this is boom tube, and you actually see the boom tube. So one of the things I found interesting here in the description, because you know how this works, folks. It's basically like a stargate. It opens, you walk through, and you come out. It says here it reduces the journey to no farther than one mile, which means that sometimes the boom tube 
was still a mile long. I mean, that's, that's like a long way to walk if you're in a hurry, you know? <laughs> I mean, is that just me? Am I being whiny about that? I mean, I know you can jog a mile in like five seconds, but I mean, the rest of the world isn't quite as fast. It, it does uh, reduce your ability to have a dramatic entrance, though, because people can't hear you coming for a while That's away. You know, like, <laughs> da, 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 you know you're like they're looking at their watch, like, when's this guy going to show up? <laughs> uh, especially because it announces it, there's a giant sonic boom that appears. Uh, it does mention here the power source is the X element. It was created by Metron and uh, Hymon and all that business. So, I, but you can read all about that elsewhere. It's big, no big deal. It does say it's created by Jack Kirby, which is great. And it has the border of yellow for technology. We don't get to see many of those. And this was written by, as you mentioned, Mark Wade. And the first appearance was in the Forever People, oh joy, in uh, Forever People number one in 1971, a comic that I won't ever bother to watch or read. So. And if you want more on this, you can check out the Kirby cast where they cover all kinds of Jack Kirby stuff. Or you can go watch the Justice League movie uh, for some of the uh, boom tubes. Or I guess Super Friends. <laughs> and they called them Stargates. But. Yeah, don't do that. Uh, but this is the uh, second listing in a row featuring Mr. Miracle. He's yes. a pretty big star apparently. This is, this is, a, this is a very uh, Mr. Miracle-centric issue. Uh, in fact, it's sort of weird they timed it to come out the month after his series got canceled. But <laughs> Synergy. Right. <laughs> All right, up next is an entry that I thought I didn't have anything to say on. I really did going in. <laughs> And I'm shocked at how much I've written down here, so I'll go through it fairly quickly. I don't have a ton to say on all the entries, but this one I did. It's Crimson Fox, and I'm like, really? I have much to say? Because the entry, the, the art's by Bart Sears, who helped introduce the character in Justice League Europe. She's uh, she's a sort of a feral sort of creature. She's an all-brown, and if you haven't seen her, just Google it, but it's, there's nothing crimson on her. She's brown, and she's got long talon, talon fingers, and she looks very aggressive and, and feral, and behind her is just a boring brick wall and some smoke. So what do you think of the art on this one? Uh, it's by, by Bart Sears, Terry Austin. I mean, uh, it's certainly dramatic. I think she has an incredibly goofy-looking costume. That headpiece is just insane uh but it's you know it's pretty cool looking and uh, overall the design is nice i love the logo i feel like uh that had to have appeared on a samantha fox record at some point <laughs> it's got such an 80s font to it we'll have to, we'll have to ask zoom since he's our resident samantha fox expert but it just it, if she hasn't used it she should have i like i like how the o has like little pointed ears like a fox yes yep <laughs> So the gist of this is is Crimson Fox, and Rob probably doesn't know any of this because this all came out in an era when he hated comic books, but Crimson Fox is actually two people, uh, identical twins, Vivian and Constance. And the deal of this is they are the heads of this super powerful corporation called the Revson Corporation in Paris is they have all this powerful clout. And their origin is their mother was a scientist who was working on this experimental, very dangerous perfume formula. And unfortunately, it ultimately ended up killing her after the babies were born. And as these girls uh, grew up and became the Crimson Fox, uh, came into their powers, they took down the head of the corporation that was responsible for the mother's death, uh, a guy by the name of Moriarty. If you're going to be named Moriarty, I mean, you just lean into it, I guess. And um, they decided, as the heads of this corporation, to fake Constance's death. So now the world thinks that only one of the twins is still alive, so that one of them can act as the corporate CEO, while the other one's out there running around as Crimson Fox. And they can just switch back and forth when each one wants to do whichever. So Vivian is the party animal, and Constance is the very serious one. Now, their powers are they're very agile, they're very feral, they have uh, leaping powers and healing, super sharp steel claws, they have pheromone powers, they have like a psychic connection, things like that. Ultimately, this character was just created to give the Justice League Europe a European member because up to that point there was full of a team with nobody from Europe you know it was a little awkward going in there and um, so that's the just so I thought that was it all right but then I started realizing there's a lot of stuff here actually to talk about sort of interesting first of all again I told you there's nothing crimson on the character right so the character was originally called Le Renard Rouge which is the red fox however 
The name now has been changed to uh, Le Renard Russe, which means essentially Crimson Fox. Um, and the deal was there was an independent British black and white comic called Red Fox. All right. Jeez. I know. Right. But who cares? You know who cared? A friend of the creators of the Red Fox. And that friend was named Neil Gaiman. So ah. Neil went and had a chat with the Justice League Europe editor, and all of a sudden the name was changed. <laughs> there you go. So uh, other other interesting things is another thing Christopher Fox is famous for is um, – you know the James Robinson Starman series? Do you ever read that? Uh, yeah, I've read the first couple of trades. Okay. Well, I don't remember what point – where I think it's in the 30s or so. But either way, uh, they put together in, in one issue uh, – it, it, Jack's not even in it, I don't think. They put together a new Justice League Europe in this one issue. And the Mist, who's Jack's enemy, systematically tears the team apart and kills almost all of them. Um, it's a really powerful issue, basically to demonstrate how dangerous the Mist is. And in that story, Crimson Fox dies, Blue Devil dies, and the Amazing Man dies. And it turns out – I've always been mad at James Robinson for that because Blue Devil is one of my favorite characters. Well, I found out in my research, it turns out that James Robinson just asked to kill Crimson Fox. That was it. And the editor actually said, tell you what, why don't you kill Blue Devil and Amazing Man too? We're not doing anything with them. So all this time I, I've been blaming James Robinson, and it turns out it wasn't his fault at all that Blue Devil died. <laughs> now, it's his fault that Crimson Fox died, but, or at least one of them, but not, uh, but not Blue Devil. A few other interesting things real quick. Uh, she has actually gone on to be in – other media. She's appeared in Justice League uh, Unlimited, like as a background character. And she was in the show Powerless, which was that live action show that went for like less than a season. Uh, oh, jeez. Yeah, wow. exactly. Okay. And then two more things, but still, all this weird stuff about this character. Uh, my wallpaper on my home computer is the cover of JLA Avengers number three. Remember that George Perez drawn JLA Avengers series? Oh, it, of course. It was stunning. And the cover to number three is this amazing collage of pretty much every character from every era of both teams. It's amazing. It's been my wallpaper for years. Well, the way George laid it out, the very center of the screen is a collection of heroes sort of bursting out. And it's very symmetrical. And I guess using Crimson Fox made sense because there's two of them to be symmetrical. So she is dead square in the middle. So every single day when I go to log in on my computer, the <laughs> box where you have to log in, it's Crimson Fox is right there. So I have to look at Crimson Fox every single day. <laughs> so it's, uh, and, and, and here's the weirdest thing where it's all leading up to. I got a phone call. Just a few days before Rob and I recorded this episode, out of the blue from my sister, all right? My sister, not a geek. She likes Star Trek, but she's not a geek. She gives me a call, and out of the blue, she goes, hey, I'll start the Crimson Fox blog. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? Do you have any idea what she's talking about, Rob? No. On the very first episode, going back eight years ago, folks, the very first episode of the Fire and Water podcast, you and I – we're talking about our my Firestorm blog and your Aquaman blog, and we said just about every character in the DC universe had a blog except for Crimson Fox. <laughs> oh God! Oh wow! We took a shot at her on our very first episode, and apparently my sister discovered podcasts and decided to listen to our show, and so she called to tell me she was starting Crimson Fox blog. She's not really intending to, but she uh, she thought that was pretty funny, and it totally took me by surprise. So that's just, that's baffling. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> yes. So, all right, that was a lot of information about Crimson Fox that bored the mob, so I'm glad you made it through there. So for, uh, at this point in history, you could find her over in Justice League Europe. It was on issue number 27 at this point in time, which is the one where Starro came to town. They had to deal with him. By the way, the text here is written by Kevin Dooley. We've already talked about the art. The border is red. And um, for more, you know, check out the Justice League International podcast. You're going to hear that a few times on this episode. 
Good Lord, man. Have some some dignity. <laughs> I have none, sir. None. All right. Up next is Dr. Light, the female Dr. Light, whose real name is Kimio Hoshi. And she uh, – and the art here is she's clearly in Japan, and she's flying in, through the air with a bunch of very colorful, very, very colorful uh, Japanese buildings behind her. There's lots of Japanese characters. There's a large gecko on the wall, which is a, which is a big ho- a symbol from the Gaijin Studios. They would love to slip in geckos in all their artwork in the 90s. And uh, she's got sparkle fingers, which I absolutely love, which is probably from the coloring rather than the, uh, from the uh, inking. But one of the things I like about this drawing is her realistic proportions because she's skinny, but she's not ridiculously buxom or voluptuous. She, is, she has the figure of a realistic skinny woman, and I like that quite a bit. So what do you think of this art here? I think it's pretty good. It's by Brian Stelfreeze and Carl Story. Oh, gosh, I didn't even I, mention that. Thank you. Yeah, I, I really like this character. I always have. I don't think they've – I mean, like again, as you've said, I have not really kept up with this stuff, so maybe she's been in a bunch of appearances. I really liked her uh, as a member of the Justice League, and then they got rid of her like immediately, which frustrated me because I thought it would be really cool to have the the new version of one of the JLA's villains as a hero in the team. Uh, but so I like this listing, and uh, I should mention on the back thing where she's slapping Blue Beetle right. features yet another appearance by Mister Miracle. That's <laughs> three three appearances in four listings, and we haven't even got to his entry yet. Nope. <laughs> uh, interesting that that slap never actually happens because yes, she was meant she was in the first issue of the Justice League. She quit by issue four. And yet she was – unless my memory fails me, she was never seen with the Justice League when she was in costume. She was no, always in plain clothes. No, that's right. So uh, and, and so the, the deal is here. She was created during the crisis, and the, the Vagan star system, which we all love, and we know had if, if the Vagan star system is in it, Marvel must have came up with this. So all the, this big beam of light comes from the Vegan, Vegan star system, and it was manipulated by the Monitor, and it came into her and gave her all these powers. And you ask, why did the Monitor do that? Hell if we know, because apparently Marv Wolfman <laughs> lost the plot on that one. It, it made <laughs> Literally. It, made it, yeah, right. Made a big deal that she was going to be important in the crisis and was necessary, and nope, not at all. And <laughs> no one did anything with her after crisis for years either. So oh. uh, the, you mentioned she appeared in JLI a little bit. And then after she quit the team, they sort of uh, – uh, reintegrated her a little bit by having her work in the Japanese embassy of the Justice League International. So she was still hanging around, but she wasn't on the team. And then really nothing happened for many, many, many more years. When Giffen and Dimitrius left Justice League Europe, uh, another writer took over who we won't talk about, but he added her to the team. And so she actually did become a regular on Justice League Europe for a very long time. Her personality was completely different if I remember right, but whatever. Because at this point, she was uh, – at the time of this who's who entry, she's extremely strong-willed, very, very strong-willed to the point where she doesn't even worry about being pleasant to people. She doesn't care. Uh, her powers are she can manipulate all forms of light. She can fly. It says here she can burn through adamantium? I'm wondering if that's a misprint because that's a Marvel thing, you know. Not sure wow. What, not sure what Robert Greenberger was doing when he wrote this entry, but I, you know, maybe he's taking a shot at Wolverine. I'm not sure. One of the things I think is sort of interesting because her power is based on light. If you lock her in a dark room, she's completely powerless. And I thought that's kind of a cool weakness. Oh, that's it's interesting. Yeah. yeah, it's a cool weakness. So first appearance is Christ on Infinite Earth number four, uh, and um, Red Border for Heroes, of course. And um, you know, it really. It, she hadn't been appearing anywhere. Again, she had a couple appearances in JLI, but not really in costume. And uh, if you want more on her, sorry, Rob, I don't know what else to say, but the Justice League International podcast. <laughs> I always assumed Ange hates her because she inadvertently caused the death of Supergirl in Crisis number seven. Did she really? 
Yeah, she's the one who distracts Supergirl while Supergirl is punching the crap out of the anti-monitor. And she and she says something to Dr. Light, like, get out of here. And the monitor says, like, something like, you pause in battle, girl. And that gives him the moment to blast her gut. So it's it's really Dr. Light's fault. I completely forgot. I, I don't remember that. I, it sounds very believable, but I didn't notice that. Oh, you know what I just noticed? There's a creative by credit for uh, Marv Wolfman and George Perez. Interesting. There you go. Okay. Right. Um, so she is, in fact, the murderer of Kara. So that's fair. All right. <laughs> <laughs> That's why Melissa Benoist hates her. I think so. Um, up next is Dr. Spectro, drawn by Pat Broderick. And this has got the very, very colorful Dr. Spectro flying through the sky in his sky cycle. And behind him are a million buildings with a million lights on, which is must have driven Pat Broderick mad doing this. Or he likes drawing crossword puzzles. I don't know which. But uh, what do you think of this one? Uh, I have not looked ahead at the remainder of the issues in a while, so I'm just guessing. But I am—I I think I'm going to take my shot no. and say that there is no bigger gulf in the history of Who's Who between coolness of entry and mort of character. <laughs> so this is this is your mort you're saying? I, yes, I think this is this this man's costume is ridiculous. Yes. It looks like he is wearing dots. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet it is drawn within an inch of its life by Pat Broderick. Oh, I see. Okay, he, that's, I gotcha. that's what I'm saying. Is like I've never seen so much artistic skill used for one of the most ridiculous, stupid-looking villains <laughs> or characters in the history of Who's Who. I'm saying there is no bigger gulf between those two things than in this listing because this listing is awesome-looking. If you could forget about the fact that the guy looks like a jackass. I might have to go back and look at the Kite Man entry again just to check, but okay, fair enough. I don't think the Kite Man one is that interesting. <laughs> Broderick really gave DC its money's worth for this drawing because this is this is out. It's an outstanding drawing. And you know, we we said this before. Broderick really used the format of the loose leaf who's sure who did. to his advantage. I mean, he would fill the freaking page. Sometimes it was just weird clouds, like he did in the Captain Adam one. But in this one, it's just outstanding. The buildings alone. I'm like, I gotta wonder if he just paid an intern to do that because that would be mind numbing. I would think or maddening doing the way he did this. It's really. Good. And he inked this. He inked this himself. Oh, it was not right. like he handed, and then like he handed it off to somebody else to do. And maybe he had an assistant, but it's not like he just drew it and then you know somebody else has to finish it. No, he did it all himself. Yeah. Well, I'm going to make sure this one goes in the gallery because this is really, really uh, – it's something to behold. That's for sure. So one of the things I like about it is the white lighting. Like you mentioned his goofy costume. It's, it's sort of like his costume has maybe got neon lights all over it kind of I think is what it's supposed to be. But his, his co- – like you see the white highlights. I think those look pretty cool actually. I like that. It, it's, it, it, it looks cool, but it's also ridiculous. That's fair. Okay. Both those things. <laughs> all right. So the gist of this character is – He's originally a Charlton character, which is not acknowledged, by the way, in the first appearances, which does bother me. Oh, oh, it is well, it there. Says that it, here it is. Here it is. Oh, no, yeah, no, no, you're says, right. You're right. There's another Charlton. Captain Adam. Yeah. There's another Charlton character that didn't get referenced this issue. I'm sorry. Okay, so this one, it is there. So I apologize. So it is a Charlton character, uh, and it's got the first appearances there. Um, this, but this is the post-crisis DC version. So the gist of this is, remember, we've talked about this. Captain Adam has a fake origin in, in this universe where you know he's supposedly been a hero for years and supposedly been fighting bad guys. None of it was true. It was all fiction only created by the government to cover up Captain Adam's real secret. And so what happened was a news reporter read you know, this secret history of Captain Adam and believed it to be true and said, oh, Captain Adam fought a bad guy named Dr. Spectro. I will go find them. So they go searching for Dr. Spectro. Well, he doesn't exist. So what they did was they, they chased down Rainbow Raider, some of his assistants, and figured they must have been Dr. Spectro. One of them, this guy named uh, Tom Emery, goes, okay, 
I'll pretend I was Dr. Spectro just to make money. So literally for financial gain, he pretends that he's been Dr. Spectro all along. He uses the gimmicks from Rainbow Raider. He develops all this technology. He's got light projectors with holograms, hallucinations, hypnotic rays, lasers, all this stuff just to pretend to be Dr. Spectro to become famous. And he builds a jet cycle to fly around. And I think it's kind of a cool idea to work the Captain Atom origin in their favor. to Because, uh, you know, Captain Atom and the government can't come out and say he wasn't Dr. Spectro because that would ruin their lie. So I think it's pretty clever. And uh, Carrie, I guess it was Carrie Bates who wrote that. I think it's very clever. Oh, I thought those thought so too. The, the great way to retcon the stories while still kind of using them. It's kind of like uh, Star Trekking the Kelvin universe. Like, you know, there you go. They, they, t- they took place, but they sort of also didn't. Yeah. Now, I, I mentioned Carrie Bates a minute ago. I'm talking about in the Captain Adam comic. This entry is written by Mark Wade. I should be specific. But uh, And at this point in history, apparently, I guess another man had taken over the Spectro identity. I don't really – I'm not familiar with that story. And and that may have, that may have happened to Suicide Squad. I'm not like exactly sure because at this point, Captain Adam was two months away from ending. That series was going to end because uh, it's going into the Armageddon 2001 stuff. And uh, he, Captain Adam was fighting a Firestorm foe in those issues. He was fighting Shadowstorm, Rob. Ooh, so exciting. Wasn't he in G.I. Joe? Yeah, I think he was. Yeah, he was the he was the one who didn't talk. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> for more on Dr. Spectre, you should check out the Silver and Gold podcast or uh, our, the Splitting Adams blog from our buddy Jay Jones. So there we go. Or just look at a Christmas tree. You could do that too. <laughs> Up next is another interesting one, General Glory by Linda Medley. And she's given layout assist credit, and this is awesome, to J.C. Leyendecker. Now, do you know who that is, Rob? Yes, he was one, he was a very very famous illustrator from the turn of the century. Uh, the poster he did a poster called "Weapons for Liberty," which was a U.S. Bonds poster, which is what this design is based off of. Awesome, very good. And he went on to do a ton of Saturday evening post covers. That's and app- right. And apparently, uh, he is second only to Norman Rockwell in the number of Saturday evening post covers he did. I, I looked at his uh, his Wikipedia page, mm-hmm. and it mentioned that he died on his estate. So that tells you how long ago it was that a uh, freelance illustrator had an estate. <laughs> That's pretty true. That is pretty true. <laughs> so, uh, yes, it's a very Golden Age feel. Uh, you've got General Glory, who is he's – a, he's a Captain America riff, okay? And we're going to have to talk about that in a minute. I mean he's got uh, – he's got – Sort of red, white striped pants. He's got blue boots with stars. Very patriotic. He's got like an eagle across his chest that goes to his shoulders. He's got a blue cowl with a star. He looks super, super duper patriotic. In this shot, he's holding a giant American flag, and behind him is a kind of sexy Statue of Liberty. I don't know if you noticed that or not, but and uh, he's got the logo. <laughs> okay, Shag. Well, I'm just saying she's hot. Anyway, uh, he's got General Glory, and he's got the flag in the logo. It's very patriotic. It says Heroes for Liberty right on there. So, what do you think of the entry? Uh, it's nice. His his costume – I know that he was meant to be kind of a gag character. Uh, his costume looks like what you would have seen in a montage of Captain America trying to design his uniform before yeah. he came up with the one we all know. That's, That's what fair. it looks like because yeah. it's, it's really just – it's got the stripes and the eagle, but it's all kind of much more kind of silly looking at least compared to the Captain America one. But I mean it's, it's meant to be a riff on that and I really like the uh, – his sort of – his version of the Red Skull. Guy yes, in the background, yes. the guy with the half skull mask with the swastika on the side of his head. Yeah. That, that's a cool design. I love the glasses he's wearing over the red yeah. skull thing. It's yeah. hilarious. Now, I know, and this is where we're going to hear from Chris Franklin. He's already writing a message about how this was his breaking point for the JLI. But I know General Glory is a breaking point for a lot of people. Uh, a lot of people have a hard time. They feel like the JLI got too goofy at this point. But, you know, I'm, I haven't reread all of them. I've, I've reread here or there spot um, stuff. And, of course, I will get to it all with the podcast. But, 
there's more to it there. Yes, he's a gag. Yes, he's a parody of Captain America. But they're using it to tell some interesting stories about uh, patriotism or about being a hero or about Guy Gardner and things like that, which is all part of this story. And um, I, I think there's more to it there. So I'm, I'm looking forward to getting in deeper and rereading those stories. So it says here his first appearance is Justice League America number 46, which is 1991. And I actually – I found out that may not actually be true. Uh, if, it, if memory serves, I think it was Tim Price who brought it to my attention. But uh, it turns out it's seven months before this first appearance, there was a mention of a General Glory in a Huntress comic, which is also edited by Andy Helfer. Uh, and they had an old General Glory comic book in there. So it almost seems like this might have been you know, planned in advance, which is kind of cool symmetry. Anyway, General Glory is back in the 1940s during World War II. He had this; it was this guy, and he had this mantra. He would say, "Lady of Liberty, hear my plea for the land of the brave and the home of the free." And he'd turn into General Glory, who was known as America's heroes, defender of freedom, writer of badness. And the entry is very tongue-in-cheek, read by Kevin Dooley. There's a lot of these ridiculous sort of descriptors for him. But he fought in World War II as an American GI. Uh, again, a very much a parody of Captain America. He had a sidekick named Ernie, who was a lot like Bucky. But Ernie had a ridiculous bowl haircut, just like Guy Gardner would have years later. That's on purpose. And the, the, the government published a General Glory comic book to sort of fool people into thinking he was a fictional character. So if news got out about General Glory's activities, they just didn't assume he wasn't real. Well, during World War II, he ended up, as they put it, going into the ice. Sound familiar? And when he went into the ice, he was rescued, but he forgot the magic words which turned him into General Glory. So he just became an old man. He grew old. Uh, Joseph Jones grew much, much, much older. Well, years later, he ended up seeing the comic book that featured his mantra. He read it, and he was transformed back into the young man of General Glory again. So he had an opportunity to, you know, he goes back and forth from being an old man to being the young General Glory. And Again, super patriotic. There's a lot of goofiness, tongue-in-cheek in there. But Guy Gardner growing up, General Glory was his hero. And that's why supposedly retro retconned why Guy Gardner has that ridiculous bowl cut is because he was um, sort of honoring Ernie, the sidekick. So that's where that comes from. Wow. So, I know. It's, it's a little goofy. So General Glory ends up joining the JLI. He becomes a member of the team. Um, so bottom, I guess the bottom – and oh, the powers are funny. General Glory um, – he, uh, he of the contagious smile, he of the sparkling eyes, he of the big chin, carries no weapons, for he believes a man's natural talents can overcome all obstacles. He can lift a tank, but will ache for weeks. He can run for days in the desert without sunscreen. Although he's not invulnerable, he's pretty darn hard to hurt. So, um, again, sort of like a Superman, sort of, I mean, Captain America sort of powers. The whole thing is corny, yes. But is it fun? I also would stand by and say it's fun. Now, did you read any of the General Glory stuff? I this uh, kind of like I think with Chris, this was right around the point where I I gave up on the book. I was just like, this is just getting too silly, and I I started fading out. Okay, that's fair enough. All right. Well, I, I like the artwork. I like Linda Medley's artwork, but I just yeah, I, I remember just kind of going like, oh, now they're now we're getting parody characters into the team. Uh, okay, I don't know. Well, I'm looking forward to giving it another try because I think there's more to it than we all felt like at the time. Because even I thought he was a little corny, but then again, I thought Nort was corny too, and I've surprisingly enjoyed all the Nort stuff I've read since uh, revisiting. I was shocked at that actually. So, all right, so you can find more of him. Uh, at this point, he was in Justice League International Annual Number Five that just came out, which was the Armageddon 2001 crossover, and he's also uh, in, featured in Justice League America Number 52 at the same time, which was 
was the boxing issue. And Rob, where do you think you can go for more on General Glory? Uh, boy, that's a good question. Uh, probably the Titan of the Defense podcast. Um, oh. close, very close. Just League International, Bwahaha podcast. Oh, all right, okay. All right, up next is the Guardians of the Universe. I think for the fourth time. So this is going to go fast, folks. All right, because uh, I mean, basically, what this is just talking about the update, what's happened since then. So the gist, though, the history. You know, they're from the planet Maltus. Corona screwed up the whole universe, multiverse. They moved to Oa. They made the Manhunters. They turned bad. The Zamoran said, "Screw you, little old blue men," and left. And then they made Green Lantern Corps. Now we're up to date. Great. All right. So what's happened <laughs> since then is you remember the hard traveling heroes. Remember they they went uh, um, Green Lantern and uh, uh, Green Arrow. Yeah. Yep. They went traveling around and they went around with a guardian, an old timer. They called him. Well, turns out Old Timer goes back to Oa and he goes freaking crazy. He went nuts. And he ended up using his powers to bring all of these cities from around the galaxy to Oa. And all these cities merged onto the planet and it became sort of like a patchwork planet. All the all these different zones, like there'd be a city here and you go a couple miles and you'd be into the next city from another planet. And all these planets, you know, these pieces of planets had to figure out how to work together in this patchwork world. You might even call it a mosaic. And uh, a little bit like Battle World from Secret Wars, if you remember that, where all the different places came together. And at this point, uh, they had just uh, that that had been at the beginning of the Green Lantern comics, the new series that had come out. And at this point, Justice League number fourteen was on the shelves, and that actually kicks off the Mosaic storyline, where uh, John Stewart has to sort of ride Sheriff on all these different worlds and get them to get along. And then uh, down the line, that would actually spin off into its own series called Green Lantern Mosaic, where John Stewart would be oversee the that planet and try and make it all work. So, did you read any of that Mosaic stuff? Not at all. It's very interesting. It's really the series itself is very experimental, very very interesting stuff. So um, Pat Broderick has drawn this one. And what do you think of the? Oh, wait, you didn't mention the art. So yeah, it's got the guardians. They're floating towards you. They're floating over Oa. What do you think of this one? The artwork is great. I, I love it. Of all these floating Urban Hazens coming at you and uh, Urban Hazens. Hey. Is that what you said? Yeah, you can. I, I am convinced that uh, the, the this design is based on Urban Hazen. Uh, and you can practically hear the theremin music playing. It just has that sci-fi. It's great. Again, Broderick, Broderick really, really brought it for these listings. These guys have more forehead than you, man. Wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> for more of the Guardians, uh, you what? can... <laughs> For more of the Guardians, you can check out the Lantern cast uh, with our buddy Ch- little Chad Belkelman. You could watch My the girlfriend thinks I'm pretty. I know she does, and she's very sweet. She's the definitely the the better of the two. Um, <laughs> and then there, uh, meaning you or her. So anyway, <laughs> your better half is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> well, I like you can't even insult me correctly. I know. It's, I've been doing it for so long. I'm, I'm keep looking for creative ways. Here, I'll, I'll insult insult you this way, Rob. If you want more of the Guardians, Rob, I want you to go watch the Green Lantern live action movie. Would you do that for me? I already did it. I'm not going to do it again. Okay. <laughs> well, instead, you could watch the Green Lantern animated series, or you could watch some of the DC uh, animated movies with the Green Lanterns, or just they're out there. Go find them, folks. All right. Up next is – this is what you've all been waiting for, folks. And I'll read right at what it says in the entry. It says, Guy Gardner, the one comma true Green Lantern. Woo! All right, folks. Yes, Guy has got his own entry. I love this. He is in an action pose. He is using his ring to make a to make a fist because his own fist is not good enough. And he is punching the crap out of some Russian soldiers, which is awesome, which is exactly what I want Guy Gardner to be doing because that's, that's where his happy place. We always say find your joy. His joy is going over to Russia and starting fights. So that's perfect. It is drawn by Joe Staten. Now, I have said a lot of not nice things about Joe Staten on this show over the years about his work in the 1980s being too cartoony. And I will tell you here, this is still too cartoony. However, 
for some reason, of all the characters, Guy Gardner is, I guess because he, he, he puts such a stamp on that character, that like I can't accept his cartooniness on Guy Gardner, I suppose. What do you think of this? I, I like it. I mean, like I said, I th- I, I'm much more favorable to Joe Staten's cartooniness uh, than you. But, no, I like this a lot. Like I said, I like the goofy listing, the one true Green Lantern. He maybe gets a little far on the inset where Guy Gardner's head is completely flat. I mean, like, you could, like, land a plane on his head, <laughs> maybe a little much. Right. Uh, but I, I like the insets a lot. So, overall, I, I like it quite a bit. And it's I like the uh, I like the action lines. I like that the camera's kind of pointing toward all, all the action lines are pointing to the center, which is Guy slapping the crap out of the – or about to punch the one Russian with his ring. So I think it's a. I think it's very good. I love the front entry. There's an. There's a piece on the back that is sort of bothersome to me nowadays, though. He and Ice are clearly having words because you know there's there's a romantic relationship between him and Ice, but it's never easy. And clearly they're disagreeing on something because she's sort of got her back turned to him with her hands behind her in a pose, and he's sort of holding the door closed as if to say, "No, no, let me finish. I want to talk to you." You know, almost almost like he's not letting her out of the room. But I know she's perfectly capable of moving him out of her way i mean she's she's ice she's extremely powerful but i don't know that 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 panel sort of bothers me a little bit i don't know am i reading more into it than i should i think so i i didn't take it that he was holding the door shut i took it that he's just leaning up against something and she's not facing him oh okay so like he's hitting on her maybe oh that could be i just he's just trying to talk to her and she's she's kind of giving him literally the cold shoulder yeah (laughs) i like that that's good all right so a few things about guy as you read this entry you know he's got a very very sad history because you know he he is a good person he really is he was the backup green lantern but then all this crap went wrong he got injured he got brain damage hal jordan slept with his girlfriend while he had to watch he got trapped in another dimension really screwed up crap happened to this guy and every time he gets bumped on the head his personality changes i mean he has serious mental issues and no other superhero cares he gets bumped on the head he changes personality and everyone just laughs at no point does anyone say maybe you should go to a doctor guy it's it's crazy how much they don't care so uh, and here's the thing like guy gardner i kind of segment him in my brain like in the jli he's funny you know he's over the top he's funny he's he's very you know pro fighting and 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 republican and all this stuff and it's very humorous outside of the jli i'm not always the biggest fan of him um until um uh, uh, until what am I trying to say? Uh, his his ongoing series that was written, written by Bo Smith. That's that's a whole different thing. But anyway, um, oh no, it's fantastic. I love it. Anyway, but I never was a huge fan of Guy Gardner outside of the JLI. But then this entry made me think about it. It talks about here how he's actually really really brave, and he's really really heroic, and he's really really loyal, and that's all true. It really those, those really are good descriptors for him. However, that that comes. Bagged or packaged with a bunch of baggage. He's stubborn, he's sexist, he's rude, he's arrogant, and he's impatient, which is really unpleasant. But he is still brave and loyal and heroic. He is doing the right thing, at least what he thinks is the right thing. And so I started thinking about this, Rob. At this point in time, in 1992, was there any other character like him that was still doing the right thing, but was basically a complete asshole about it? I can't. You know, I'm not putting the Punisher in the same category because that's a whole different kind of thing. But can you think of anyone else? Hmm, that's a good question. Yeah, no, he really did kind of stand out. He was he was kind of like the the natural evolution of the kind of Arnold Schwarzenegger, 
Silver, Sylvester Stallone hyper testosterone male figure, and he was kind of that wrapped up, but as a superhero. So yeah, he was he he certainly stood out at the time. I remember that. I mean, I was buying those comics, so yeah, he was unique. And, and I think a lot of us hated him for it, but I kind of love him for that though, because there are people out there like that that can be doing the right thing, and you still don't have to like them. You know, mm-hmm. I know a lot of people that I'm not a big fan of, but they're doing the right thing. So um, yeah, I uh, I don't know. I kind of like Garner for that. He's different. Uh, I wouldn't want to hang out with him in real life, that's for sure. Anyway, no. um, so uh, a couple other things. Now, Guy, Joe Staten did the artwork here because he had drawn those old uh, Green Lantern core issues. And also he was doing um, – the, the Green Lantern book was doing something very interesting. They would do uh, story arcs where it would be like a Hal Jordan story arc, which would be drawn by Pat Broderick. They would do a Guy Gardner arc, which would be drawn by Joe Staten. And then they would do a John Stewart arc, which was drawn by Mark Bright. And they would – the ideal was going to be that they would just keep cycling these, you know, and everyone would get a turn for a few issues. And Guy Gardner had just finished up a, a, a run at issues 9 through 12 with spotlighting him. So that was sort of a, a different time. And, and now in about 10 months, he will get his own ongoing series though. And so he'll be a, so, you know, a breakout character if you will. But so, um, yeah, lot, lots, lots of interesting stuff on him. So at this point, as I said, you check out that Green Lantern comic. Um, if you want more on him, of course, listen to the JLI, Bahaha podcast, or you can listen to the Lantern cast with Chad. Uh, also, you can still find on the internet from the Two True Freaks Network, there's a show called Just One of the Guys, which was dedicated to Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner. And it was hosted by our good friend, Sean Engel, who now has passed away. But all those episodes are still out there to listen to, and you can celebrate your love of Guy Gardner there. So that would be good. Oh, and I, I should have mentioned um, Jose Marzan did the inking. I didn't bother to mention that, so I should have. Oh, Kevin Dooley wrote it, and it's also Red Border. Sorry, I'm just dropping the ball here. <laughs> and it ends on his whole bit about the General Glory haircut. Oh, that's true. Yeah, there you go. Awesome. All right. Uh, up next, this is an interesting entry. It's Hell's Hierarchy. And the, the entry on the front is a lot of different artwork of all these different characters. And it's drawn by Val Semeckis, and it's beautifully illustrated. I mean, it's really, really, really pretty of a bunch of things. I have no idea what they are because um, I didn't read the Etrigan Demon comic. So uh, other than Blaze from the Superman book, I don't really – I can kind of figure out who these people are from the descriptors, and we'll talk about those in a minute. But it's, it's an entry showing you the sociopolitical structure of hell. And so that's fascinating, but I, I, I don't personally identify with it a lot, I guess because I don't know it, but I, it's real pretty to look at. What do you think of this thing? I was surprised to see that its first appearance is in Sandman, yep. the Neil Gaiman Sandman. I didn't I didn't I mean I read Sandman, but I didn't really know that. Uh and I didn't I didn't know that it was Val Semeckis or Semix. I'm, I'm not sure. I, I, just, I say Semeckis, but I could be wrong. Because uh, to me, it kind of looks a little like the Ty Templeton, especially that one guy's face a little. So, oh, I was, I, mean, thinking, I was thinking Alan Davis, but okay. I mean, it's nice looking. I mean, they're, they're kind of all these hideous creatures. I like that weird looking bug thing with all the Fine. eyes, yep. like whatever that is. So it's, you know, it's pretty gross looking. There's a lot to say. It's sort of funny that there's, you know, how recent this is. This this team, or that's not a team, I guess, or whatever you call it. I guess it is. Well, it's a team of some sort. It's well, a group. We finish your uh, thought, and I'll kind of explain that. Okay. This group has been around not even two years at this point, and there's three full columns, and yet the boom tube is – you know, <laughs> it's like one quarter of it. Well, to be fair, they're not a team. They're just using Hell's no. Hierarchy to describe all of these different characters from the Demon comic rather than giving each one of them their own entry. Right. And the right. reason Sandman is the first appearance is because Lucifer from the Season of Mist storyline, remember how he – Sandman gets the key to Hell and Lucifer leaves? Um, that That's where all this starts from. Is, is Lucifer was the you know of course the, the top of the hell hierarchy, so that's why Season of Mist is getting credited as that. So um, on this on this art piece here, so the top left hand corner you've got the big yellow guy. That's got to be uh, 
Bial, who is the father of lies. He's also the father of Etrigan and Merlin. And if you look, he looks a lot like Etrigan. Uh, then you've got that that bug creature you talked about. That has mm-hmm. got to be Beelzebub, which is the Lord of the Flies, who's in charge of decay and comp- decomposition. Then the floating thing with all the eyes and the other on the right hand side that must be uh, Az- Azazel, who is a, who is called the Abomination, was over chaos and darkness. In the bottom right hand corner is Blaze. She was a supervillain from Superman, uh, where they sort of took her in here because she is part of the Hell hierarchy, in fact, and she's over flame and lava. And then you've got Agony and Ecstasy, which are the two, the male and the female character that are tied up there. The girl's looking sexy and happy, and the guy looks miserable. And they're basically naked, tied up with looks like, um, what do you call that, um, barbed wire. And then uh, then there's all these other characters. So there's, uh, I'll just name check, Nurgle, Abaddon, Astaroth, Morax. And they, just, they talk about all of this stuff in the back. And it is really fascinating to read, except I didn't read demon so i can't really connect with it but it does sound very interesting it's well very well put together by dan raspler as a a writing piece they do talk about how etrigan has declared himself the soul king of hell at at some point so that's sort of interesting and uh again i i the idea that they really dive in deep to the political structure of all this i sort of find fascinating so um let's see it is bordered purple for supernatural which is actually really cool you've already mentioned the first appearances in sandman and base of operations i love this one hell because you know it is and uh, interestingly enough, so so Lucifer, right, is is where all this starts. And I don't know if you you probably know this, but Lucifer. So there was the Sandman series. Lucifer was in there. He goes off, and Vertigo then launched a Lucifer ongoing series, which then inspired the Lucifer TV show. So I asked my wife, who watched Lucifer, I rattled off all the names of these demons. She's like, Yeah, I'm pretty sure a bunch of those demons are in the show. So, Dear God, I don't know. She couldn't completely verify that, but she's like, I know that name. And I know that name, and some of these names might be – I think Beelzebub was not created by you know DC Comics, obviously. That name has been around for a long time. But, uh, so, but anyway, so at least some of those characters have appeared in uh, the show. <laughs> All right. Up next is Joshua Clay, uh, formerly known as Tempest from uh, Doom Patrol. And on the cover here by Richard Case and Mark McKenna, you have got Richard, uh, Joshua Clay. Stand- it's got the same trade dress as all the Doom Patrol ones, which is a vertical white column with the name up there. And he's standing there with a great T-shirt that says normal with a question mark. And he's got his hands out like, hey, what? Who? Me? You know, and uh, – he, in the background is the Doom Patrol characters, and they're talking to someone with a giant head bulb, uh, a light bulb for a head, which I don't remember, but I'm sure it was in a Grant Morrison issue, probably. And, and he'll uh, probably he, be in the TV show shortly. I'm sure he will be. He'll probably get his own series. And Joshua is just uh, dressed as like a regular guy. So before we get into the details of it, what do you think of the art? Uh, it's fine. I mean, we've already talked about it. I like the trade dress. I think Richard Case did a really good idea, has a really good idea here of making all the Doom Patrol listings look uh, similar in design. So, uh, the, I, you know, the fact that I liked him as Tempest, I thought he had a cool costume. This, I know that this was the 90s to kind of like make everybody look kind of dull and gray looking or whatever. <laughs> but, but I mean, you know, as a design, it's great. Well, the, the deal is here, the reason he's in the plain clothes is because he's given up being a hero. He is, he's decided he doesn't want to do it. Right. And, and his history here is that uh, he, he grew up in Brooklyn, very, very poor. He's had a very troubled youth. And before he could get arrested, he ended up being drafted into the Vietnam War. There he received medical training. And um, while on one of their missions, he, in his unit, his sergeant, they went into this village, and his sergeant lost it and started killing the villagers. And in his anger, he lashed out of the sergeant, and that uh, that anger activated his mutant power, which was these energy blasts. Uh, he has the ability to... Um, it's just he shoots giant energy blasts from his hands. Is the gist of it? Uh, very, very powerful. And so anyway, he has just attacked his, his you know, soul, his um, what do you call it, superior officer. So he goes AWOL. 
He runs. He becomes a deserter. And he ends up meeting, at that point, the newly formed Doom Patrol, the, you know, the Paul Kupperberg, um Wasn't it uh, – was it Joe State who drew that? Who drew well, that? The, nine, the, uh, the ones in Showcase, yeah. Yeah, the original ones, yeah. So he ends up joining that version of the Doom Patrol. And then eventually that group breaks up. And so he goes off and he creates this fake alias and he graduates from medical school and he has his own practice. Well, the Doom Patrol reforms. They sort of almost blackmail him to rejoin. And he eventually agrees to stay on as long – as the team physician as long as they don't make him be a superhero because he just wants to be a regular guy. So that's why he's in plain clothes. At this point, Doom Patrol is on issue uh, number 45. And uh, for more on this character, um, you know, and I always kind of thought he was cool as Tempest as well. But it's sort of an interesting idea for him to be just a regular guy. Anyway, uh, you can, of course, uh, listen to the Waiting for Doom podcast. And, uh, you know, I haven't kept up with Doom Patrol TV show, so I don't know if he's appeared on there. But it seems pretty darn likely that he probably has. Oh, yeah, yeah I think he was. So. I think he was in a flashback episode, actually. And he's got the border for a blue for supporting cast. It's written by Mark Wayne. First appearance, Showcase number 94, 1977. All right. By the way, Showcase 94, interesting. And uh, Uncanny X-Men 94 was the first issue of the Uncanny X-Men. Mm-hmm. The, Do- the Doom Patrol and the X-Men, man, they're so in sync. All right. Mm-hmm. Up next is the acronym Legion. And uh, this is the Legion from the 20th century. I know it's very confusing for Rob because there's just too many legions he told me last time. And these guys are essentially 20th century uh, space security force. They are for hire. They are not uh, like, you know, these um, altruistic superheroes. They are uh, they are a police force for hire is what they basically are. The art is by Barry Kitson. And uh, you've got uh, just a whole bunch of characters here. You've got Real Docs and Strata and Stealth and all these different characters and Lobo and everybody. <laughs> and, uh, you know, what's happening is Lobo is raging and he's attacking or wants to attack Real Docs. And uh, FaZe is yelling at Real Docs and pointing at Lobo and everyone's holding Lobo back because he's just going crazy. A lot of people are looking on. What do you think of this one, buddy? My sole yeah. note, note here was Lady Quark. Yeah, <laughs> that was what I wrote down. <laughs> That's what I wrote hey, down. If, if no one's going to pick up Doctor Light, someone had to pick up Lady Quark. So, <laughs> someone had to rescue the, the Crisis castoffs. So um, the, the, the gist of this, this is, as I said, it's a security force formed by the son of Brainiac, a guy by the name of Vril Dox II. And Vril Dox, we've talked about him before, he is brilliant, he's inventive, he's manipulative, he is a cold, calculating jerk. And he has put together this team of you know, essentially mercenaries, really, to protect different governments as long as they're willing to pay. And it's a bit of a retcon, because this is from the 20th century, and they're sort of the forerunners of the Legion of Superheroes. And uh, I'll run through the members very quickly. Well, by the way, Legion stands for the Licensed Extra-Governmental Interstellar Operatives Network. So, there you go. Say that six times faster. All right. Anyway. Oh, Sorry. Okay, yeah. We've got Lydia Malore, Garen Beck, Captain Comet. Captain Comet, Rob. Uh, <laughs> Mary Jane, Vril Dox, Lady Quark, Faze, Lobo, Stealth, Telepath, and also Strata and Garve, who are the members there. And if you ever read this book, all those names bring fill your heart with joy, because it was a great book. I, I started rereading it on the DC app recently, and I'm having a blast. I'm up to issue, I think, 15 or 16, and really, really enjoying it. So uh, it's Red Border for uh, and written by Mark Waite. It is a hero team, to be specific. I mentioned Barry Kitson drew it because he was the artist in the book. Uh, you know, I, I, I think it's a great series. It was a lot of fun. It was a neat idea, a nice way to give us another Legion book. So, And if you want more on them, you can check out the Legion of Super Bloggers. Or maybe you could write Rob a nice personal letter about it. That would be nice, actually. So, uh, I, that would be great. I'll read it on the air if you do that. Perfect. Uh, don't offer that because someone might take you up on it. All right, up next is the Legion Subs. Yes, the substitute Legion heroes, folks, but they're called Legion Subs at this point. Art by Ty Templin again. He did them last time as well. And here they look, as Rob would call them, dull and gray, um, but it's really brown. And they are in, like, camo fatigues kind of thing, and they are taking target practice because they are now a tough, hard-as-nail 
female squad of fighters, and you've got Porcupine Pete there. You've got um, – <laughs> stop it. Don't, make, don't do that. You've got uh, Color Kid. You've got uh, – oh, gosh, who else? Uh, I'm dying. Infectious Lad. Infectious Lad. Yes, thank you. And um, so what do you, what do you think of this, this piece by Ty Templeton? Okay, yes, it's dull, but it's drawn by Ty Templeton, which already raises it like a full letter grade. Sure. Plus, plus you get a the, the classic Legion subs drawing on the back uh, with Stone Boy Unconscious and Chlorophyll Kid and uh, Porcupine Pete snugging up to Infectious Last Night Girl looking pissed off, Polar Boy looking embarrassed. So totally worth it. Totally <laughs> worth it. Love it, love it, love it, love it. So the deal here is the Legion subs. So years ago they started out – as people who were rejected to join the Legion. and But they refused to be discouraged. They stuck with it. They ended up – and they weren't a joke. Okay, I know you may find that hard to believe, but they were not a joke. They ended up being backups for the Legion of Supers. They were literally the substitute Legion. They would they were backups. Even it ended up as sort of like a training ground or a farm team for the Legion for a while there. Then by the 1980s, you got – they really became a, a comical joke, which is what that art is that you love so much, where they everything was a joke and Keith Giffen was really laying on the – humor. Now, at this point, they're attempting to sort of redeem the team and make them treated seriously again. So in the five-year-later era, uh, where the Earth government and the Dominators really were very, very oppressive, the subs are a, a rebel group at this point. In fact, subs, stand, you're going to love this, stands for Superhuman Underground Battle Squad. <laughs> yes. Um, Invisible Kid gave them that moniker. So uh, they are a real crack-fighting force. They are treated very seriously in the 5YL. Now, there might be a joker there, too, here or there, but for the most part, they are a really effective force. So you got the Red Border for Hero Team, written by Tom and Mary Beerbomb, so you know it's written within an inch of life. First appearance is Adventure Comics number 306 from 1963. And at this point, Legion of Superheroes was on issue number 20. And for those of you who read the 5YL, yes, that is the Venado Bay issue, which Everyone just went, oh, yes, they did. I promise. And you, Every, Everybody. Everyone everybody. who knew, is familiar with that era, I should say. Okay. Anyway, uh, go check out the Legion of Superbloggers for more information or listen to our Who's Who in the Legion episodes for more on the Legion subs. All right, up next is an entry no one demanded. It is the Legion supporting cast entry uh, drawn by Jason Pearson and Carl Story. You've got four – it's split into quarters and you've got four images – they, quite frankly, are really boring. Um, they're nicely illustrated, and I who th- know who the characters are, so I like it. But they're really – it's not exciting at all. You've got um, Ron Vidar with his baby up there. You've got um, – oh, what's – oh, gosh, what's the names here? You've got, I guess, King John, who that probably is. You've got Siobhan Aaron, and you've got Cersei. What do you think of the art? Dull drawings, I'd say, but great layout. I love the layout. I like that it's broken up into four panels mm-hmm. instead of just making kind of like – Instead of trying to contrive one scenario where all these characters have to be in the same spot, uh, they decide here to give them each all their individual little settings. Jason Pearson and Carl Story, it puts them all in their individual little places. So I think it's – I wish all the supporting cast uh, drawings were done this way. I think this is very clever. And and I really like the art because he's trying to ape – the Keith Giffen 5YL era artwork, at the same time giving it uh, a bit of more life than Giffen gave it, I think. Well, that's – yeah, okay. That's so, not hard, but oh, okay. Oh, yeah. okay. Oh, come on. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll save that for another day. So, all right. I've already kept talked a lot in this episode. So, uh, <laughs> so the characters mentioned in here are Marty Alon, who is the former president of Earth and also Colossal Boy's mother. You get uh, Calorie Queen, who is – she's the one making a fist down at the bottom left-hand corner, which is hilarious. She is a lot like Matter Eater Lad, except she's actually useful. Uh, she eats stuff and then gets super strong. He doesn't get super strong. He just eats stuff. She actually gets super strong when she eats stuff, and she's now part of the Bismol Senate. Uh, you've got Cersei, 
who is on the front there. She is this horribly manipulative, really bad, bad lady. Uh, she's a former science police. She, throughout the Five Wild era, she is completely pulling Sunboy strings. She, uh, she does a couple good things for a while, but for me, she is just the worst. Uh, then you got Siobhan Aaron, who is a, a police officer. She's fantastic. She's Element Lad's romantic partner and a later revealed to be transgender, which was a, a really kind of groundbreaking story, I think. Then you've got King John, who commands the militia. You've got Loomis, who is in the middle panel on the back, who is sort of their handyman. He's their engineer and handyman. He's a friend of Cosmic Boys. I always like Loomis quite a bit. And then you've got Ron Vidar, who's in the front. He is Laurel Gann's husband. Who Remember, Laurel Gann is the Supergirl analog, so she's, right. he's basically the husband of Supergirl. And uh, they have a son, a child together. He is also the son of Universo, and he's a former Green Lantern, which is sort of... Jeez, wow. Dude, dude's got some uh, credentials there. He was also in Batman and the Outsiders. He was. Yeah, yeah. was. It wasn't everybody. I think I was in him for an issue or two during the Baxter run. But anyway, uh, it's a blue border for supporting cast, and it's written again by Tom and Mary Beerbaum, so lots of text there. Good stuff. And also check out the Legion Super Bloggers or our Who's Who episode for more on them. Next up, interesting entry, LexCore. All right? Not Lex Luthor, but LexCore, the company. And uh, the background is a, it's a technology entry. And on the front, you've got basically a shot of downtown Metropolis with this giant L-shaped building that uh, John Byrne gave us in the Man of Steel storyline where you see that, that that's LexCore's headquarters is a giant L-shaped building. I love it. And then there's some cutaway images showing you inside like the bio lab and it shows you some cubicles and a lady walking down a hallway. <laughs> um, it's drawn by Dusty Abel uh, and Al Vey. What do you think of the art? It's fine. I mean, it's just a, just a cityscape. There's not a lot here to get excited about. Uh, the cutaways kind of look like of how they would represent the way Superman looked at things with his X-ray vision, uh, which You're I thought, right. yeah, I thought, so I thought that was cool. I mean. Again, how much is there to say about LexCore? Uh, I understand that if you're trying to do a complete listing of the DC universe, you have this. This feels like something you would see more in a game module mm. than in Who's Who because it's it's an it's an essential setting. But I don't know if it really needs a whole Who's Who pitch. Well, there's a couple reasons it's in here. Um, first thing I do want to note, by the way, is this is Metropolis, so you do see the LexCore building, which is massive and really tall. You see the Daily Planet. You see WGBS. You also see the Empire State Building and the <laughs> Twin Towers, which is a little weird that they're there in Metropolis. But okay, I guess if it's supposed to sub for New York, I guess it's really subbing for New York. But And, you know, it must have took a long time. Like, this is a serious architectural drawing. This must have took a long time to do all the little buildings with a lot of rulers uh, for this work. But part of the, the reason this is in here is because at this point in D.C. history, Lex Luthor is dead. So they're not going to do a Lex Luthor entry right now because he's not here. So what they've decided to do instead is do an entry about his company. One of the, and this is a really stupid, nitpicky, interesting thing. But on the backside, see where it says LexCore? That's actually the logo for LexCore. Every other time, it's just been a font. So I thought it's sort of interesting that they took the effort to put the logo back here rather than the font. I know. Oh, yeah, you're right. I didn't really notice that, but you're right. It, that's it's not the Who's Who font. Yeah. yeah. So uh, Lex has been dead for five months now. And it turns out – now, the, the, the reader doesn't know this at this point, so sorry. Spoilers, folks. But Lex actually faked his death. <gasps> and, I know, gasp. Um, <laughs> and he will remain dead for like another six months, which is sort of, I mean, it's kind of nice they took him off the table for a whole year. So, in order to do Who's Who, they had to do something else. So, they did his, um, I guess they could have put a deceased entry in here, I suppose. Yeah. But instead, they did the corporation, which is interesting. 
It does talk about how Lex did not come from a rich background. His parents were not wealthy, unlike what we learn on the Smallville TV show. And it goes into the history of the company, including how they once owned the Daily Planet. And um, the real, again, the real testament to me here is that Lex stayed dead for a whole year, which is pretty great. And then when he came back, it came back as his son, Lex Luthor II, with long red hair and an Australian accent, which it took him a while for us to for us to find out that that was actually Lex himself as well. So anyway, uh, for more on the Lex Corps, you should check out From Crisis to Crisis, or you can watch the Smallville TV series, which means my daughter are doing right now by the way we just finished season two tonight all only 74 more seasons to go it's only 10 seasons long and we are watching the essential viewing so it's only like i don't know 10 to 13 episodes in a, uh, a season so we're, we're we're getting through it all right all right up next is the madman and it is singular or you can call it a group whichever way you prefer to look at it art is by greg gular or guller and uh and this is um he's, he's a blue beetle villain who was sort of uh annexed by Hawk and Dove is what you've got here. He is a bizarrely dressed acrobat. He has got every kind of color you can imagine all over him, red face, yellow hair, blue and green shirt with pink and black and red and yellow and just lots of stripes, and it is, it is offensive to the eyes. And um, now this is the one. This is I was getting mixed up earlier when we talked about uh, the Charlton character earlier, uh, Dr. Spectro. I was expecting a first appearance from Charlton listed here, and it is not listed here. It absolutely should have been because the, this is a Charlton character. So uh, it was in the Blue Beetle uh, comics. Uh, I don't know if the title was actually Blue Beetle at the time, but it was a Charlton comic, and it was a Blue Beetle story. Anyway, um, it was a series of acrobats in the old days. At this point, more recently, though, the leader has developed superpowers, which allow him to turn others into his madman group, and it becomes sort of a group mind, and they were beaten by Hawk and Dove. Beyond that, there's not a lot of interesting things to say. What do you think of the art, by the way? I like it a lot. I like the design. It reminds me of Dr. Spectro. It's very color- this is a very colorful issue. Uh, I have to say, if I was a DC supervillain, I would not let myself be annexed by Hawk and Dove. <laughs> I'd be like, I, I'm good. that's going downstream. So I would stay fighting Blue Beetle if I could possibly get away with it. Very interesting you should mention that because when we get to sudden death, I'm going to bring that exact topic up, believe it or okay. not. Right. I, I like the Madman logo. It's all these different kind of fonts. It's fun to show the sort of colorful, crazy design. I love the colors. Yeah, it's I, it's a nice piece. I like Greg Galar's art in this series. It, all of his pieces are solid. Yes. So um, I think they're super fun. It makes me wish I liked Hawk and Dub more. So anyway, for more on Hawk and Dove, you could uh, check out uh, – well, at this point, by the way, Hawk and Dove was uh, about to uh, was about to end. And he had appeared six months prior in Hawk and Dove and would not appear for another five years, by the way. Uh, he would go uh, away for a long time. And he had written this entry is written by Mark White, by the way. And you can see him fighting Blue Beetle in the bottom or in Hawk and Dove. And you see him you know, uh, in, his, uh, in, in his disguise. He also the, – the Mad Men also appeared in a Batman Brave in the Bull cartoon. So that you can check that out too. Super fun. All right, folks. Up next is Mr. Miracle. Hot dog. And this is – who drew this, Rob? Penciled and inked by Jim Aparo, which for 1991, that's pretty rare. He wasn't inking a lot of his own work at this point. So I have no idea why he's drawing this because he doesn't have any real great connection to this character. Maybe he just requested it. But it's cool. It's super cool. I mean, you know, I'm never going to be not happy about Jim Aparo inking himself. Dude, this is an amazing piece. I mean, he's got to be doing it because of his love of Jack. That's the only. I mean, he's got to be right. And it, it is. Sorry, what? 
I said, I guess. He drew him a lot in Brave and the Bold, but I, other than that, I don't know what any connection Apparel had to this character. Well, I mean Jack Kirby. I'm saying he's got to be yeah. for his love of Jack Kirby, yeah. Right. So uh, it's his great shot. Mr. Miracle is bound up in some crazy gadget. You know, he was always bound up in this weird tech, trying, you know, in like some escape, death-defying escape. And he, he's bound up in this thing, and he's, it looks like it's being swung on a pendulum, and it's being blasted with lasers, and he's trying to break free. And it's just, it, it, he's upside down. The artwork is great. The line work is great. The expression on his face. I mean, it, it is a great representation of Mr. Miracle by Jim Aparo, and it's a great drawing. It's super fun. You got buzz saws on the bottom. I love it. Yeah, it's why it's. I love that he's upside down. Yes. I think that's terrific. And it feels very Kirby. It feels genuinely Kirby, which is nice too. So the gist of Mr. Miracle, just to go through this fairly quick, and this to be specific, this is Mr. Miracle scot free, and that's important. Um, you know, his father is High Father from New Genesis. They, uh, him and Darkseid, in order to make a, a peace treaty, they swap sons. So Scott Free went to go live on Apocalypse, and in exchange, Darkseid gave his son Orion to go to New Genesis. Uh, while on Apocalypse, Scott Free was raised by Granny Goodness in the orphanage. He escaped, and this is, I like what it says here. It says he escaped Apocalypse, and the entire planet is a prison, so it was a miracle that he escaped. I'm like, oh, mm. that's clear. I like the way they played that. So uh, he comes to Earth, he meets the original Mr. Miracle, Thaddeus Brown, who ends up being killed. He then takes his place as the new Mr. Miracle, and he tours all over the country doing escape artist tricks. He uh, hooks up with Barda, literally. Uh, Oberon works with him as assistants. They battle Darkseid. He ends up getting married. He joins the Justice League International. He lives in Bailey, New Hampshire. All this stuff. Ends up back in New York. So lots and lots of stuff in there. The gist of it is he is the greatest escape artist of all time. And he uses his mother box, which you may remember from the Justice League movie, uh, to let him do all kinds of things. And he has these flying discs on his feet and i just i love this character he is always fun he never gives up he's a loving husband he's a great adventurer he's got this great sense of legacy because of thaddeus he's a, he's the showmanship i just adore this guy what, what do, you, do you would you have a strong connection with this character at all yeah i always like mr miracle uh he was definitely more of a superhero obviously than the other new gods which is i think why when dc canceled all the new gods books they kept the mr miracle book going and actually marshall rogers took over mm. and drew it for a while and that's really cool again his costume is great uh he had a, a superpowers figure which yes. which uh which i had he was super beefy doesn't really look like <laughs> mr miracle i'm familiar with but he's still really cool uh no he's a great character he's a really and he's it's kind of fun when they team him up with Batman. You would think that there would be a lot of overlap there, but it's there's something fun about having one guy who's just really good at this one thing that he even can outdo Batman. Like, mm. I think that's really cool. That like, yeah. So of course Batman is a master escape artist, but Mister Miracle's just a little better, which I dig a lot. I, I I've always liked this character, and I think in re, my reread of Justice League International has made me love him even more. I really love his appearances in there because it's, it's not only is he a great action hero, he's funny. You know, there's a great comedic element to it too, and his own ongoing series was lots of fun. And I, in preparation for this episode, I got a little excited, so I dug out on the DC Unlimited app or DC Universe app, and I started rereading the Mister Miracle series. And it's interesting, you know, when it started, the first few issues. His personality really wasn't there. Like, he's, no, he's no. definitely a hero and he's doing the right thing. But it's sort of like a Silver Age comic in that he's got a set of powers that define or abilities that define him, not his personality. His personality is just hero, straightforward, let's go. And uh, it's it's almost like a, it's almost like not even reading Scott, which is interesting. Um, so anyway, uh, and then I, I today I. Rewatched an episode of Just League Unlimited, The Ties That Bind, which is all about Mr. Miracle and Big Barda and Flash going to Apocalypse. And that was super fun uh, watching that. I really enjoyed that. Lots and lots of fun. So uh, at this point, he's active with the JLI. I 
told you all the stuff with Barda. All that applies there, too. And for more Mr. Miracle, maybe you should check out there's a podcast about the Justice League International. So, all right. Ooh. Up next is Mr. Miracle again. What? What? Except this Mr. Miracle is Shiloh Norman. Now, Shiloh was a character who was introduced in the original Mr. Miracle comic way back in the 1970s. He was a young boy. Uh, he was in four issues of the original series. He became sort of a, a ward of Mr. Miracle and Oberon. Uh, he's an African-American young man at this point in history now in 1991. He's a college student, though, and he is studying to be the next Mr. Miracle. So he's got a Mr. Miracle suit, Mr. Yeah, Mr. Miracle suit, but it's a little bit different than Scott's. It's still the same basic colors and design, but there's some different differences there. And in his background, it was sort of similar to Scott's in that he was in this oppressive orphanage, and he was always looking to be uh, better. And he ended up, as I mentioned, he became sort of a ward of Scott Free for those issues. And then he goes off to college and does his own thing, but by this point, he had sort of come back into Mr. Miracle's life, and they were teaching him the tricks of the trade. And so you had all these great stories where he Scott was trying to pass on the legacy to Shiloh, which was really wonderful because, you know, Scott's a legacy in him of himself, so it sort of makes sense. And uh, now Shiloh, though, is very impetuous. Uh, he's very impatient, and he really wants to prove himself. He's got lots of different powers from his gadgets. He's got his own version of a mother box. He can stick to walls. He can stuff with electromagnetic energy. He's got sonic vibrations and holograms and energy blasts, all these different things. You know, usually it's whatever the story needs. But he was an interesting character, and I really enjoyed him in the, in the, um, in the Mr. Miracle series. Are you familiar with this character at all? No, I mean I, I'm sure I read the original series, so I'm sure I've seen him at some point, but I had no memory of him. Okay, um, really, the Mister Miracle stuff didn't happen in the original series; it happened in the uh, on, the Mister Miracle ongoing from right. the eighties um, right. and nineties. Now, I, I, I didn't even talk about the art on the cover, did I? I'm sorry. So the front is got Shiloh dressed in his Mister Miracle Mister Miracle. I keep trying to say Miracle Man, Mister Miracle suit, and he is bound up and chained just like he would in one of these escape traps, and he is inside his glass sort of. Um, jar, I guess, of sorts. Like and a diving bell kind of thing. There you go. And he's being, you know, it's basically, it's an escape trick. He's at the bottom of the ocean, and there's sharks swimming around him. Will he get out? He's clearly holding his breath. And you can see up on the surface, you see Scott Free and Oberon, like, watching from a raft to see if Shiloh breaks out. What do you think of the art here? Oh, it's fun. It's it's clearly referencing Houdini, mm-hmm. uh, which I like a lot. It's, I, it's Joe Phillips and Carl's story. Yep. Uh, so yeah, no, it's a, it's a nice, I love this slightly worried look. He's, he's actually looking right in the camera, yeah. uh, which is kind of fun. And he has this kind of like, uh, okay sort of thing, which is, how am I going to get out of this one? He is also upside down. Like the other Mr. Miracle. Oh yeah, also good point. Down. Well, it shows a, it's always a good sense of off kilterness when you show a character yeah. upside down. So yeah. Yeah. And, uh, Joe Phillips is a great artist. He did a lot of the Mr. Miracle Man stuff. I keep I said it again, but anyway, he did a lot of the Mr. Miracle stuff towards the end. Uh, he's, I always liked his stuff. You know, uh, he actually on Facebook, he still posts some really great art. Joe Phillips is a fantastic artist. Don't look at it at work because he does put some risque stuff out there. But um, <laughs> sorry, I'm just, I'm just warning you ahead of time, folks. Anyway, uh, are you talking about what Joe Phillips or Ryan Daly? <laughs> All right, okay. Little column A, little column B. Anyway, okay. so he uh, Shiloh had just appeared in the Justice League International Annual this month, which was, by the way, an Armageddon 2001 crossover. So he saw the future where Shiloh had taken over as Mr. Miracle, uh, which was pretty cool. Anyway, so he appears in that annual and then doesn't appear for another six years, which is a real shame. So, unfortunately. Red Border for uh, – because, you know, the Mr. Miracle Man series, the Mr. Miracle series was canceled at that point. So Red Border, uh, written by Kevin Dooley. All right, next, and I know you're dying to talk about this one, is The Prankster. 
and it is drawn by John Bognadov and Dennis Janke, and it is super fun. It is a very, very cartoony guy in the in the foreground. He's got this ridiculous green suit with a giant sort of cartoon um, bow tie and cartoon flower, and he's got a giant, oversized, ridiculous face with a uh, handlebar mustache, and, he, and he's got spats, and he's holding this bag that uh, it's got a, it's supposed to be a whoopee cushion, but it's got a stick of dynamite in it, and uh, it's super fun. And Rob, why don't you tell the people home what's in the background? Uh, this is my favorite listing of the I book. I figured it uh, was. <laughs> because, yeah, as you mentioned, it's got that. And then in the background is a genuine serpent of a classic page of pranks and jokes that you would have seen in like a 30s or 40s or 50s comic book with like the trick gum and the build a body of steel and a jujitsu book and a surprise package and a little spy camera, all that crap you saw <laughs> in comics that you could buy for $2 and you sent away for the, some, to some weird P.O. box address. Uh, I, it, I think the design is brilliant. Uh, if, if this is John Bogdanov's design, uh, you know, all credit to him. This is a great, great listing, uh, a way to present this character. Yeah, I absolutely love this. And, you know, I didn't appreciate John Bogdanov enough back in the day because his Superman Man of Steel series was very stylized. And I didn't really get it. And as I gotten older, I see the really interesting stuff he's doing and his versatility as well. Really a very versatile artist. Very appreciate very very surprising. So I, I really appreciate it. I absolutely love this thing. It's so much fun. So I love the uh, inset of him leaning into the frame like a creep. Yes. Really and he's like twirling his mustache. He looks like a Warner Brothers character. It's well, really, really good. Well the lighting really gives it. Yeah, yeah it's great. And then the inset picture. Yeah. Uh, Superman's about to grab him and he's got these giant X ray specs on and he's got this really, you know, huge grin on his face as he's staring directly at Lois Lane and she's covering her bosom like, Hey, hey, quit looking at those. <laughs> it's really hilarious. So uh, essentially what this guy is, at least in this incarnation, he is sort of like a soupy sales sort of TV host. And he hosted a show called The Uncle Oswald Show on WGBS for years. And at some point he got real paranoid. He was convinced that he was going to be canceled. So he started stockpiling all these sponsored products. You know how they back in the day they'd be like, this today's episode sponsored by Campbell's Soup or whatever. So he started stockpiling all these sponsored products. So 25 years later, sure enough, he gets canceled. And he takes his revenge with all of these sponsored products he has as pranks. So, like, waves of soap bubbles are covering several blocks of Metropolis, and he blocks the sewer tunnels with popcorn. You know, just all this crazy nonsense stuff, these giant pranks. And it's all intended uh, – he actually wants to get caught because he plans to write a tell-all famous uh, book at that point and get famous from that. And that's his plan. So he's very hes very much a schemer. He's very devious. Lots of slapstick pranks. Seems like a total hoot. And now we talked about previously the pre-crisis version had gone through a change in during the Bronze Age where he suddenly had become young and handsome and all this stuff. I so much love this cartoony version much more. I just absolutely adore it. Yeah, I think it's a really fun way of reinventing the character. And, and of course, it's the original version, uh, I don't know if you mentioned, he first appeared in Action Comics 51 from 1942. And then the current version, of course, was Superman number 16, 1988. And it says, Daniel Donald Lewis is a baggy pants comic who was born too late to enjoy the heyday of vaudeville. Which is sort of funny because, of course, the original prankster was born during vaudeville. Oh, the, the, the updated version, of course, is missing all that because it's 40 years later. I think it's, I think it's a really fun reinvention of this sort of 
you know, certainly a character that you would say, how the hell can he possibly be a Superman villain? Right. But uh, they found a good way of working. I mean, he really works better as a Batman villain, really, in terms of his, his M.O., but uh, but I think it's great. He, in a lot of ways, he, there's some similarities between him and the trickster, but uh, yeah. I think there's enough yeah. distinction that it, uh, they both both are deserving. So yep. it had been two years since he'd been seen, and it'll be another two years till he returns at this point when this came out. And for more, it's, by the way, The Border is Black and written by Roger Stern, the wonderful Roger Stern, which is fantastic. And for more on him, you should check out the From Crisis to Crisis podcast with our buddy Michael Bailey. Up next, oh, I love this one, Rainbow Raider. Uh, Roy G. Bibolo, folks, uh, drawn by Ty Templeton. Now, here's the gist of it. He, uh, there, It's a cityscape, and in the background, uh, there is this rainbow flying out of this museum. It's got this great sort of curve going across the screen, and he is riding the rainbow like a surfboard, and he is right in the foreground. He's got a couple paintings under his arm, and one of the things I love about this is almost all the world is devoid of interesting color. It's all gray. It's all drab. It's all boring. It looks like a Keith Giffen five-year-later comic, right? Anyway, but the rainbow itself is very colorful and his costume is very colorful and is drawn by Ty Templeton so it's freaking beautiful I love this entry so much please tell me you feel the same okay remember what I said that uh, Dr. Spectro had the biggest gulf between great drawing and more of characters yes well, he's already lost that title to Rainbow Ray. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's Ty Templeton drawing one of the biggest morts in the history of the DC universe. But the listing is so great. It's so old. I love how kind of just blank he looks. Yeah, very I, I like him. I, yeah, I like with the Picasso under his arm. I like the color holds of the rainbow. I like that they didn't draw the, the different colors that get mm. painted in. Mm-hmm. I think that's a nice touch. His costume is actually genuinely pretty kind of cool with the black tunic, you know, or the well, the, the black leggings and the black arm and the, the hood, and then you've got the, the rainbow color tunic. Again, if you forget the complete ridiculousness of the character, uh, it's great. It's a great listing. I just and I like he's kind of old school. He's stealing old paintings. You right. know, he's not blowing up the he's not blowing up the world. He's just stealing shit. I like that. Well, you said his costume is genuinely cool. I actually would argue and say his costume is dorky as heck, but Templeton it, makes it work. Well, that's that's what I said about same thing about Doctor Spectro, yeah. where it's like it's really cool looking, but then if you kind of you know what I mean, at the same time, you're like that's ridiculous. Yeah. You know? But yeah. it's it, I love the goggles. It's great. The only thing I don't like about this listing is the logo. The logo yeah. is uber dull. Yes, it is. Uh, that's the only thing. But everything else about it is great. I mean, I, I have to think that's this, it's why you get Ty Templeton to do this is because this character is just so stupid that you get like, <laughs> well, let's let's yeah. hand it, let's give it to somebody who will give it some real visual life. Oh, it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. So, so the, the gist here is, you know, it's Roy G. Bivolo, which is the greatest name in the history of comics for secret identities. Uh, talk about What's that? RGB. Right. And, and what is um what is that? Oh, there's a word. Like when you're predestined by your name or whatever. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, the, 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 all the characters, you know, it's it's you're always destined to be that if that's your name. And I mean, he said, you know, red, red green, blue. Obviously. <laughs> our, our buddy Nathan Archer uh, uses the – and he's, he's screaming it at his iPhone right now. He, he says it every time we hang out, whatever that – term is so uh, you have to put in the comments nathan to remind me but yeah uh clearly he, he his from the day he was born his life was determined where that was going anyway so um predestined i guess it's not it's not the phrase but still anyway. okay uh there's not a lot of history here so mark wade went really light on the history but um 
really the only reason it's in here is to back out the Dr. Spectro entry because Dr. Spectro had, had, (laughs) which is crazy that this one's supporting Dr. Spectro, but that's really why it's here because that guy had recently come out as Dr. Spectro and he was an assistant of Rainbow Raider. But I'm more interested in the fact that, so the, just the the deal here is this guy is born, Roy G. Bivolo, and he's colorblind and his father's an optometrist and he builds these goggles to help his son see, but they also project light, which affects people's emotions. Like, uh, red light causes people to be angry. Yellow causes people to be scared. Green causes people to be envious and so on. I got to assume Jeff Johns, who wrote Flash for years and wrote Green Lantern and all the emotional spectrum core, I got to assume he tied these together at some point. I don't know if he did or not, but that would be insane if he didn't. Um, there's, there's no way he couldn't have, but uh, someone please tell me so I know. Now, the thing is, I always, and I think I mentioned this last time we covered the character, but I always assume this guy had been around just as long as all the other Flash foes, like from the 50s. I know. He's relatively recent. Exactly. I thought, though, but I thought him, because in my mind, him and Captain Cold and the Pied Piper and all those folks stood shoulder to shoulder. They're all the same, you know? But yeah, he was introduced in 1980. And it turns out uh, I actually own uh, his second appearance. Because it was a Firestorm issue. Firestorm, right. And sure. that's what misled me. Is one of the first times I read a Flash comic, this guy was in it because it was a Firestorm issue. So I assumed he had been around just as long as all the other rogues because they treated him equally. So anyway, I, I like I like to think of him as one of the main rogues. And sure enough, he has appeared on the Flash TV show. Of course he has. So he's a television star. Uh, he had not <laughs> appeared for two and a half years at this point, And he would not appear for another four. But uh, so there you go. Rainbow Raider. I, Ty Templeton made this thing like one of my favorites. Yeah, I love the inset of him stealing the color off the Flash. Yes. And so the Flash is in black and white, which yeah. you just never see in a DC comic. Characters are never in black and white. They're always a color comic. So that just stands out. And I also like him painting in his kind of big baggy Zubas that he's got wearing. <laughs> third inset there. Awesome. All right. Uh, black Border, by the way, for, for villain. And, of course, written by Mark White. So, all right. Up next is Red Star by Tom Grumman and Al Vey. Now, all of the Titans characters have done had some really amazing entries by Tom Grumman, and this is another fantastic one. And it's funny. Like, all of these entries, they look similar enough that I always thought you could fit them together, like in a triptych or something. Because you see those mountains behind him and those rocks and stuff. It looks a lot like the Changeling or uh, Changeling entry that we fa- we did because he had a bunch of rocks behind him too. Or, or mountains. So I, like, I always think they fit together, but I don't think they do. Anyway, uh, he's standing there in his new costume, the red and yellow costume, and he's holding the uh, Soviet flag. It's got the Red Star logo there. I absolutely love this piece, even though he's got a perm. What do you think of it? Yeah, I mean, Tom Grummet, I've, I've always, we're always waxing his car. I think he's kind of an underrated comic book artist. I, I have to say, like, I can't, I can't objectively say that the new costume isn't better than the old one because the old one is pretty ugly but i kind of prefer the the clunkiness of the old one the green the, one the, really yeah yeah it's just it's so kind of silly looking that i like it even though the, this one's better but there's something just i think this one's a little just it's a little too streamlined it's, i just i don't know i like the flavor of that original weird green spinach green suit that he had. <laughs> I, I have an affection for the green one as well. Between the goggles, it looks a little booster goldish, but between the goggles and yes, the collar does. and the green, it, it, there's something classic about it, but it doesn't scream Soviet Union. So that's why I like this one better because this screams Soviet Union with the red and the yellow and the star and everything and the sort of asymmetrical side. I, I just love it. Now, the interesting thing about him is that you know he, he's essentially like a Soviet 
Golden Age Superman. It's kind of how this works. His, his power levels are around the Golden Age level of Superman. He was a teenager, and there was this meteor that crashed, and he got exposed to it, which turns out it wasn't a meteor. turns out it was a spaceship. Anyway, it's what gave him his powers, and he went by the name Starfire. And he teamed up with the Teen Titans. They were allies of his. Uh, and then eventually ended up changing his name to Red Star because another Starfire came around. And he was betrayed by some Soviet extremists. So now he is a man without a country. So he's working side by side with the new Titans at this point during the Titan Hunt storyline. And he's helping them. Uh, he helped out with them and they rebuilt Cyborg this way. And the interesting thing with the Russians is their feelings are that if they can control Red Star, that's fantastic. However, if they cannot control Red Star, they are fine letting him die over on American soil so they can reap the propaganda victory about him you know, betraying his country and dying in America. Sort of interesting. But that what's really interesting in this is that when this came out, uh, the, you know, he was appearing in the New Teen Titans, or New Titans, I should say, again, and you know, with the Soviet background. This is an interesting moment in time because it is just six months before the fall of the Soviet Union. So very soon, he's going to be a Soviet hero with no Soviet Union anymore. So uh, sort of interesting. I, I, I don't remember how Marv Wolfman dealt with that, but I'm very interested to uh, check into that. Maybe Tom Panaris can tell us how that was dealt with. So interesting. I've been uh, laying off this the whole episode because I know people get bored with it. But the, the height and weight thing, oh, uh, I, I, this will be the only time I mention it. It says here that he's 5'10", 180. But you look at the drawing by Tom Grummet. He is just muscle on top of muscle. Yes. There's no way he's 180 pounds. I agree with that. You're I'm sorry. Correct. Come on. It's, it's I mean, absolutely look at, possible. Look, look at the inset. He's got neck muscles. He's got that <laughs> Sylvester Stallone over the top look. There's no way he's 180 pounds. There. That's okay. It's the only time I'm going to mention it. Very fair. That is very fair. So at this point, you find New Titans on the shelf, issue number 77, smack dab in the middle of the Titans hunt. Uh, you've got your border for red. You've got Robert Greenberger doing the uh, – the entry there. And uh, for more on him, I would check out uh, the Titan Up Defense podcast you mentioned earlier. You can also go to Pop Culture Affidavit, the blog there. Our buddy Tom Panarese did a lot of writing on that. Um, or you can um, – I I am not caught up on the Titans TV show yet. I've gotten uh, almost halfway through season two, which is still freaking phenomenal. It's so good. But I don't know if uh, Red Star has appeared yet, so sorry. I can't help you there. I assume you will at some point if he hasn't yet. All right. Up next is and, – and this is where the weirdness is. This is where sudden death comes in, folks. Uh, even though if you uh, if you have your collection, you'd be missing him because he's not on the cover uh, showing you that. But this is, in fact, where he appears. And I am getting to that entry right now, so give me a moment. Okay, here we go. Drawn by Jason Pearson and Carl Story. Thank you. That is exactly right. Did, did I ever tell you Carl Story used to shop at our comic book shop? Uh, no. Yeah. I know that. Yeah, he was a customer. So anyway, uh, he is uh, – he's a funny guy. He is basically like a muscle beach kind of guy. Here his head is shaved on here, but he used to have long, long flowing locks. But he's kind of a muscle beach guy with giant sort of Oakley sunglasses and you know, you know, he's got a belt buckle with a skull and he's bursting out of his clothes. He's bursting out of like a leather jacket. He's bursting out of his jeans, but he looks all badass and like a junkyard of sorts. And he's sort of screaming at the sky. I mean th this is just screaming 1990s so much. This has got to drive you crazy because it looks so 90s, although the – Anatomy is better than most 90s work. Well, his name is not Sudden Death. It's Sudden Death! Exclamation point. <laughs> this is true. This is true. You didn't comment on the artwork yet, though. It's fine. Uh, I, I, Jason Pearson, I, you know, I'm not a huge fan of. Uh, you mentioned the big flowing locks. We see that on the one inset where he's on the beach mm -hmm. trying to punch a hawk and there's a girl in a bikini. There's not much to say. I mean, he barely – there's – Almost not even two full. Co there's one in like a little bit of a 
uh, column worth of information. There's just not a lot here. So, yeah, I didn't have a whole – I was just like, yeah, all right, whatever. Exactly, yeah. He, he, his power is to absorb kinetic energy and he then explodes out with the energy. And he fought Hawk and Dove. Uh, at one point, he was a bodyguard for Velvet Tiger, which we talked about a little while ago. And now – here is the discussion about Hawk and Dove that you mentioned earlier about you'd rather not be annexed by Hawk and Dove. I'm actually here to say that what, however you feel about Hawk and Dove and some of the stories, they really were an idea factory you know, for villains and for, for revitalizing villains. Because if you look at it, I mean the Mad Men, they revitalized them. Velvet Tiger, they revitalized her. Sudden Death, they created. Flaw and Child, they either created or annexed from Amethyst. Uh, Barter, they created. I mean, they were really creating a lot of really cool concepts that, in our opinion, weren't executed all that well. Sorry, Dr. Ange. But uh, so at least they were an idea factory, and there's a lot to be said for that. So i got to give them credit. Sure. You could always take that idea and run with it later. Absolutely. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Uh, so at this point, uh, Hawk, the Hawk and Dove series was three issues from ending because the Armageddon 2001 series was coming. And it had been two months since we had seen Sudden Death in the pages of Hawk and Dove. Now, if you want more on Hawk and Dove, the best place I can recommend is actually go to the Batgirl to Oracle, a Barbara Gordon podcast. Look in the archives for, oh, me! Because I was on a few episodes with Stella where we ended up talking about sudden death because he was in the Hawk and Dove comic, which tied in with some of the Batgirl stuff. So crazy. But it's there. It's a thing. It's real. All right. Up next is one of the most boring uh, uh, post-crisis updates for a character. Uh, We're going to talk about Terra Man. The art here is by Dan Jurgens and Dennis Janke. And he is looking all very 1990s techno with a giant gun on his arm like a cannon and he's got all kinds of like a tech suit and he's standing amongst like a toxic waste field with all this pollution being poured into the water and and ocean there what do you think of this one the art wise uh this led to my shortest note where i simply wrote no (laughs) no this is the the artwork is fine where i like dan jurgens the artwork is just perfectly fine but there is what no there is no reason to try and make Terra Man cool. Terra Man is on purpose the most ridiculous, jagged superhero, supervillain possible. Uh, there, he, there's a reason why he's a oh, he's a regular character on Zoom's podcast, uh, Done in One Wonders. Uh, he is a space cowboy who flies a winged horse through space, uh, and he shoots people with his six guns. That is the character. If you're not going to do that version, don't even bother doing Terra Man. Just, just get, get, call this guy something else. This is not Terra Man, even, even a little bit. <sighs> I second everything Rob just said. Yeah, uh, no. Just to tell you this version, though, he, he was a construction mogul. Uh, he had a chemical plant which polluted, uh, poisoned a town. He was convicted, and he was racked with guilt. So when he was paroled, he decided to go on this kick to try and detoxify everything. Built himself a suit of armor, which allowed him to create tornadoes. You should have mentioned that. Don't forget Terra Man, Tornadoes. But, um, and he is a hardcore Echo Warrior. And unfortunately, in his activities, he ends up endangering other people. And uh, I, my note here was modern take on Bronze Age goofiness. Bronze Age is better lean into the insanity is what mm-hmm. I meant. Yes. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. So, yep. and Rob already said it. Yeah, the number one place to find more of Terra Man is on Zoom's Done in One <laughs> Wonders. He's literally podcast. a character on that show. Yes, he is. And the voice is absolutely hysterical. We all love it. It's absolutely great. You can also listen to from Crisis to Crisis if you want to hear about this version of Terra Man. But really, I mean, who wants to do that? So, anyway. I, I, I want to just, just talk because you were talking about Zoom's Done in One Wonder show. I just want to give everybody a little bit of a peek behind the curtain. If you ever want a glimpse, 
into insanity, uh, read a Dunham One Wonder script that you have to perform. Because the, as you read the script and you see all the different parts uh, that you're scanning for your lines, you realize all the other parts are all performed by one man. It is really a descent into madness, those scripts. <laughs> you are not wrong, sir. You are not wrong even remotely. I've had many scripts where I've had to perform Dark Side. And uh, yeah, just uh, the amount of stuff that, that Zoom has had to put together is unbelievable. The editing alone has got to be... All these speaking parts are one guy. I know, I know. Crazy. Oh, Zoom. Credit to you, sir. Credit to you. <laughs> so. and, and we mean that. We really do. We're not. We're laughing because it's crazy, not because we don't love it. So. I'd rather talk about Zoom than this Terror Man listing. That's fair. That's fair. All right, let's move on to the next one then. So up next... Oh, here we go. Something good. There we go. Two-Face by Chris Sprouse and Dick Giordano. Yes. My, my biggest note here is those eyes... That's oh my gosh, great. so nice! Love oh. it, love it. It's a really close, tight shot of Two Face. He's 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 not quite centered. He's off to the side a little bit. You see both sides of his you know his scarred face, his regular face. The scarred side is sort of in the shadows, almost like the wall behind him. Even is that's where the shadow starts perfectly. He's flipping his coin. You can see him holding a gun, pointing it right at you. He's got the logo Two Face. This is a great, great artistic piece. Yeah, it's super. I love. Uh, funny the uh, the little inset is the same thing as the front page. They didn't draw a new <gasps> face. That's kind of interesting. Uh, I don't know why that would be, but I, I love the middle panel where he's doing the whole like thing. That's great. Uh, no, I, this was always one of my favorite. I think this is one of the great bat villains of all time, and it's a great listing. Uh, I always kind of I always find it amusing, and this might be I don't know. We'll have to decide how we're going to wrap who's who up when we finally get to the end of it. But I wouldn't like. I would love to maybe go back through all these and pick some characters who we thought maybe got the most consistent listings because the other who's who listing that Two-Face got was by Brian Bolland. Mm. Uh, and it's like, so that means he got, I think these are the only two, right? I don't think he got another listing. He and, may have. The, the I, updates. I, I, I have to We'd have to go back and look. But I mean, I, I always find it amazing when I love the listing from the classic series and then they do the updated one and the updated one is really good too. This is great. I love him sticking the gun in the in your face. Yeah. It's terrific. Just terrific. Okay, so I got to, correct you slightly is weird the inset picture it's not exactly the same it's like so damn close like i think what they did was they I, tilted it it's the same no it's, the it's exact not same. Look, look at the hair look at the lines on the face i think what they did was i think they photocopied the pencils and it got inked differently in the inside so i think it's the same pencils different inks look at the the lock of hair coming down across the forehead look at the uh lines above the eyebrow Look at yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. There's it, some differences. So okay. I, I think it's someone photocopied the pencils, and each one got inked differently. I think is what happened. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. Good. Good eye. I think you're right. Years. You're right. Very strange. Anyway. Yep. So this version of uh, Two Face, it's written by Mark Wade, by the way, is really uh, it's much more fleshed out than we're used to seeing. With uh, um, by the way, did I mention it was inked by Dick Giordano? I did mention that. Yes, right? you did. Okay, you did. Right. Yeah. I knew uh, Chris Prouse. I know I said. Anyway, uh, the, the background's really much more fleshed out, and it really talks about how Two Face was a bad, bad, bad man even before he got the acid in the face. He was uh, advocating killing bad guys. He was uh, suggesting that Batman should kill suspects, things like that. And the only thing that really bothers me about this version of Two Face, and I don't know where it comes. I don't know if it came from that annual or Secret Origins. I don't know where this this version was played out. I don't really recall. But anyway. There, there's really nothing here to redeem of Harvey Dent. Like one of the things I love about the Two-Face stories is the evil side of Two-Face. And then there's Harvey Dent, which was Batman's friend, who was a good person. And he's at war with himself 
over doing the evil thing and doing the right thing. And here they're showing us that Harvey Dent was already evil before he even got scarred. Now you could argue that was his dark side, just not manifest, whatever. But I, I, I find a, I have a hard time saying there's nothing for to redeem there. And a lot of the Two-Face stories are about his redemption. I mean, heck, that, that was the whole Batman Returns arc where he's trying to redeem himself and stuff. I don't know. Well, how did you feel about this? Yeah, that's – I didn't really thought about that, but you're right. Yeah, I mean I, I like the idea that Two-Face was a good guy. Like, you know, the – I mean, geez, they played that up in um, The Dark Knight, the mm-hmm. movie. Yeah. Of that, you know, he really could have been the Gotham – the savior that Gotham needed because he doesn't wear a mask and then he gets screwed up and that tips him over the other side. So, yeah, it, it, it's – I think it's an interesting version. Uh, it's a new take. I mean, obviously, post-crisis, they, they eliminate the other Two-Face because there was another one. Uh, which they mention in the, the the original Who's Who listing, but they do away with all that here. It's oh, just I forgot about been, that nonsense. Yeah, that's it's right. always just been Harvey Dent at this point. Um, but yeah, that's it's it's a that's a. I'd have to read some of the stories to see if I felt something was missing. But I did. I, I like that pathos. I mean, uh, as you mentioned in the Dark Knight Returns, like you know, there's that. That's the whole storyline of the first issue where you know Harvey Dent is the big villain in that story, and that that's got a great ending. Where we see that even though he's gotten his face fixed, he's still scarred for life, mm-hmm. uh, which I thought was a nice angle. So yeah, yeah, that's that's. I, I don't know if that's the the best way to change the character, but again, I haven't read the stories all that much, so I don't know. But uh, yeah, anyway, still a great, great character. Oh, such a good character. Now it had been a long time since he appeared at this point. It had been about eighteen months, and that was in the Lonely Place of Dying storyline, which <laughs> which of course gave us uh, Tim Drake. So. For a classic Batman villain, that's a long time. It's a super long time. Um, now, for more on Two-Face, there's all, obviously, a million different places you can go. You can watch all these movies. You can watch all these cartoons. You know, you can listen to the Batman Nightcast, which has resurfaced, shockingly, since the last time we did a Who's Who episode. Um, you could you could get puffy stickers with Two-Face. You know, you can find him pretty much everywhere. So, <laughs> And last entry in the book, oh, dear Lord, is The Wanderers <laughs> by Dave Hooper and Robert Campanella. All right, here's the deal, folks. The Wanderers had their own series. It had ended a year prior to this entry. And as far as I know, this incarnation of the Wanderers was never seen again, ever. So the characters are Reanimage, Aviax, Elvar, Dardalon, Quantum Queen, and Psyche. They were heroes. They were killed. They were cloned. And the clones came back slightly more edgy in 1980s. And these were covered really in-depth in the Who's Who in the Legion episodes. And I really don't want to end this issue on such a loser, so I'm done. Yeah, I really, Sugar and Spike could have gotten a listing finally in Who's Who. Instead, they gave space to this group of morts. Yeah, come on. The only thing I like about it is that Elvar's got like a beer on the cover, and he's laughing and full, and jumping. That's kind of cute. But that's that's about it. I got nothing else to say. Oh, okay, I, yeah. Well, anyway, all right. go to the Legion Super Bloggers or listen to the Who's Who in the Legion episodes. So anyway, so that is issue number 11 of Who's Who in the DC Universe. Ignore the last entry. Otherwise, it was a fantastic issue with lots and lots of great entries and lots and lots of JLI. I love this one. I mean, I feel super energized after reading this. So Rob, as I ask you each month since we've started the loose leaf who are some of the f- your favorite pieces in the book certainly prankster nice uh rainbow raider yes two-face yes mr miracle which one uh, uh with the jim apparel scott free uh, uh and i again just for sheer effort uh, I got to give it to Pat Broder for Doctor Spectre. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Uh, I, I had I didn't have Doctor Spectre on my list, but I had all the other ones you mentioned. Uh, I will also add Big Barda 
by uh, Adam Hughes, I thought was really exceptional. And I thought Red Star by Tom Grummet was really exceptional. So All right. Fantastic group uh, of, of collection of stuff. So that is going to do it for the issue. Uh, we are going to take a podcast promo break. And when we come back, we are going to do your feedback from Who's Who in the DC Universe, issue number 10. Justice League International, Blah Ha Ha Podcast, a new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. We'll be going issue by issue in release order, tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter. Batman. Doctor Fate. Black Canary. Fire. Ice. Maxwell Lord. Oberon. Captain Marvel. Rocket Red. Captain Adam. Mr. Miracle. Guy Gardner. Booster Gold. Blue Beetle. Nort. And many, many more. Justice League International. Blah Ha Ha Podcast. Part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? The Fire and Water Podcast Network is a collection of super friends plus shag. So what could be more appropriate than a podcast about the super friends? It's for all mankind, a super friends podcast, a read-through show about the classic DC comic book series covering all 47 issues of the original run plus a few surprises. Hosted by me, Rob Kelly, and a rotating group of my super friends. Coming soon from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. It all looks good to me. Welcome back to DempsterCast, ladies and gentlemen. We appreciate you joining us here on the backside. So, or some people like to call it who's who, hows and whys. It really depends on your perception of uh, softcore porn. Anyway, uh, before we get rolling on your feedback, I do have one piece of news to share that's a little who's who related. I recently went to Arizona and had a wonderful time hanging out with our good friend Sean Ross and Dr. G of the Pulp the Pixel Podcast Network. Had an absolute blast. And they took me to some really cool comic shops. And there's like a comic shop and then there was an annex in the same shop. Keep it an annex for a comic shop, Rob. It was amazing. What, what does that mean? An annex for a comic? Shop? Well, like a second, a second room of just like super cheap stuff, and just a long boxes <laughs> and long boxes and long boxes of cheap stuff and stacks of stuff. And I found wedged in a corner somewhere, or maybe one of the guys found. It. I really can't remember. Anyway, uh, this giant chock a block, as my friend Rob likes to say, uh, of stuff. It only cost me five dollars, and it is who's who in the DC universe, the loose leaf edition. Still sealed almost every <laughs> single issue. Uh, issues 1 through 14, 16, and one of the impact ones. And uh, they have never been opened. They are still sealed. So I've got this giant block of Who's Who loose leaf edition that are now duplicates that are still sealed. This is really cool. So I'm thinking uh, we got to figure out what to do with these. What do you think? Yeah. I've, I mean, otherwise they're just going to sit in the pile next to your bed like all the other comics that you don't read. <laughs> That's not nice, and it makes me hurt. All right, fair enough. Okay, so Rob and I are going to do a little brainstorming of what we're going to do with these, and maybe we will uh, slowly do what, what, what is your problem? Uh, <laughs> the idea of you and I brainstorming something. <laughs> or maybe it's not so much brainstorming. It's just storming. Anyway. I know. Uh, Let's start a network with Ryan Daly. Yeah, that was a great idea. That was a 
horrible idea. Anyway, <laughs> um, anyway, so we will we'll figure out a way to dole these out slowly over time. So anyway, let's get into your feedback, folks. We're going to start off with your iTunes reviews, and as you know, those really really help raise the profile of the show, and it helps people find us. And man, they people are finding us every single episode. So please keep those iTunes reviews rolling as new ones come in. It continues to raise interest in it. So we've got a couple here. You want to start us off, Rob? Yeah, these reviews really do help us get noticed above all the other Who's Who podcasts. So uh, we got such a smart ass. Actually, you know what? If you Google Who's Who, we don't even come up in the result on iTunes because there's so many other podcasts about Who's Who in corporate business, Who's Who in baseball, and all that crap. We don't even show up in the first round of searches. Uh, so you, you laugh, you laugh, but we could use help. All right, I take it back then. Yeah, leave us more iTunes reviews. All right, let's let's do the ones that we did get. We got one from Paul K three, and he writes best podcasts. I can't believe I've forgotten to post a review of hashtag FW podcast. Best set of comic podcasts out there. My favorite is Huzu, but you have to check them all out. Paul, I agree. Wow, thank you so much. All right, this one comes from Gotham Chris. This is one of the best podcasts about the DC universe. A fun podcast that covers several different DC Who's Who series. Rob and Shag always keep things light and entertaining as they describe every entry. From the catchy theme song to the letters page full of listener feedback. Hey, that's what this is. Uh, it's a great show, which is amazing because I don't think the hosts like each other. I <laughs> <laughs> this guy's he's sharp. This guy he's perceptive. This yep. God, Chris Gotham. <laughs> uh, I I just hope they can keep it together until they get through the loose leaf edition of Who's Who. Well, thank you so much for the review, Chris. But uh, no promises. No promises <laughs> at any given moment it might be our last podcast ever. So. It could all explode. It's absolutely possible. <laughs> all right, folks. Again, thank you for those iTunes reviews. And yes, please, please give us some more so that we can finally show up on a Who's Who result without having to type in. Definitive podcast of the DC Universe. So, <laughs> so we have pulled your feedback from uh, Who's Who number 10, which was last episode, and majority of these are coming from our website. Remember, go out to our website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com. Leave your comments there, you, or you can send us emails, because the gist is we, we have so many comments coming through the website, which is amazing, that we just we can't track everything down on social media anymore. It's just too much, folks, so we're sorry. So please uh, we, go out there on the website and share uh, – I'm sorry, and leave your comments there. We will continue to give credit to everyone who does the share though on their social media that's always appreciated so 71 comments on the last episode rob all because i said the words fight me about tim drake being the best robin so uh ouch yeah it really uh, started a a firestorm as it were oh. uh so the first comment is from gothos mansion he says hi guys thanks for the listen i hate to be that guy but fyi denny o'neill created E Chang and robert kaniger killed him off E Ching was occasionally referred to as incredible on some of the covers, so good on Zoom for incorporating it into his logo. Zoom is a really talented guy and should be working for DC. Well, yes. I mean, Zoom is – the amount of talent Zoom has is, is more numerous than there are grains of sand on the beach. It's oh, just yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, by the way, that the, the Denny O'Neill – I think that was my fault because I think I'm the one who said, you know who killed I Ching? And you were trying to remember the name of the sniper, and I said Denny O'Neill. So I think oh, I was okay. going for a joke, and I got it wrong. So I think that one's on me, folks. All right, up next uh, is uh, – and, and yes, I, just to go back to that, Zoom is amazing. I was looking through who Zoom's who, who's who just the other day, and I just was astounded. Every single one of those entries is an absolute joy to look at. They're beautiful. It really captures that whole Bronze Age sort of essence. And uh, anyway, it's just lovely. All right, sorry, getting back into this. So Joe X left us a comment, and uh, he says, Did Shag skip the Construct slash JLI slash Maxwell Lord connection? 
And I was like, well, what? So I asked Joe to kind of clarify, and he says, according to him, uh, the construct was involved with Maxwell, with Maxwell Lord creating the new JLI. That was retconned in JLI, JLA Annual Number 9 to be the Kilgore. So apparently Kilgore was the giant machine in the cavern that uh, made Max form the JLI. My opinion on that is that that came out long after the Giffen Demetrius era, so I don't count it as, as legit. So there we go. All right. Then we're from our good buddy Michael Bailey from the Fortress of Bailey 2 Podcast Network and does shows like From Crisis to Crisis and so many more. And he left us some uh, comments about different characters. He said, Thorn, I love the idea that Metropolis has street-level heroes to deal with stuff Superman can't because he's so big picture. Her showing up in the summer of 1991 was a lot of fun, and she stayed around long enough to be in the legacy of Superman one-shot. And he says, Bendis recently brought her back in the pages of Action Comics, so apparently the character has some life in her yet. <laughs> Little irony here, Rob. Uh, it's been so long since we've done a Who's Who. Bendis did a huge thing with Thorn that has gotten a bunch of people pissed off about the DC Universe. So kind of funny that uh, the seeds were planted at this point, but they didn't bear fruit till after we recorded. Hmm. Now, it has to do with your favorite group, the Legion. Anyway, uh, then he says, Armageddon 2001 may result in mixed feelings from readers of the time, but I love the storyline. I didn't buy all of the annuals, but that first 80-page issue will always mean a lot to me. I was still in the wilderness in 1991, which meant I knew nothing of this event outside of a house ad. I found the first issue not really knowing what it was about and just became enthralled with the despotic future and the fact that outside of flashbacks and the odd panels, there were no main heroes in this book. It's all about Matthew writer and that made me connect with him more and i'll always love this character because of that and of course he's talking about wave rider there i there's a lot of love out there for armageddon 2001 I'm, i totally understand mike all right uh we got a comment from dr andrew of course does the supergirl blog comic box commentary and is a member of the legion of super blockers he says that perhaps after the supernova of the legion issue <laughs> the next the next who's who was doomed to be a letdown and i have to say this sounded like even this sounded like even you guys weren't into it as much as usual and this issue included freaking firestorm yeah. Usually there is some character that I feel passionate about, but nobody really bubbled to the surface. The closest was Lady Shiva, who I loved in O'Neill's question. I always wondered who would win in an Electra Shiva fight. I suppose the two ladies would first size each other up. S I I S. Thanks, oh. Andrew. In this, <laughs> in this century, Shiva's weapons are ludicrously long. Doesn't she know that size don't matter? Oh my gosh, Andrew. You got, you got a two in there. I like. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he didn't do a lot of that when we met him. I think he was. He was really... I, I think this is so painful. Isn't this kind of like going back on his hypocritic oath? Um... It's he really kept it bottled up. Okay, so anyway, we continue. I like the Starfire page because there was something almost wholesome in her expression. This is sort of the girl next door cheesecake hotness. That's a win. Otherwise, not much to say here. I am intrigued with all the Cinemax Cinema discussion here lately. Uh... Between the Shannon Tweed talk and the Laura Gemser talk. Not Dempster, Shag. Gemster. Oh, did I say Dempster? Okay. You said Dempster. Oh, well. It sounds like another show was about to be slated. How about naming it Late Night Steam? Maybe it's time we talked about Krista Allen at the height of her power being perfect to play Firehawk. And if I ever start that show, you will be one of the guests. I guarantee it. Oh, my gosh. I can't believe we've gone down this path. I will say, though. Fire and water after dark. So, Chris, I'm glad he mentioned Chris Allen. So, my daughter and I are watching Smallville. We're having a blast. We're doing, like, an essential viewings. We're not watching every episode, but we're watching lots of them. And an essential episode is the one where Clark gets heat vision. And Chris Allen is the reason Clark gets heat vision. Uh, sort of, like, made him feel funny when he's climbing the rope in gym class. And that's how the heat vision um, uh, manifested, seeing her. Uh, wow, they, they really 
whew, they make her an impressive specimen on that show. So, and uh, her as Firehawk would be amazing. So, um, Gotham's Gotham's Mansion says, uh, I don't know about oh, I don't know about Krista uh, Allen as Firehawk, but I always thought Bring Stevens would have been a great Poison Ivy. Now, didn't Bring Stevens do? Uh, obviously, she's Dave Stevens' wife, but didn't she do Vampirella for a while? I thought I, something like that. I forget. I didn't know she was Dave Stevens' wife. I didn't know that. I think so. I could be wrong. <laughs> Maybe you should Google that while I read Chris Franklin's feedback. Okay. So Chris Franklin from the Fire and Water Podcast Network, who does shows like JLU Cast, Superman Movie Minute, and so many more. He says, okay, Shag, fight! And this is the invitation I gave them. I said, Tim, Dar- Tim Drake's the best Robin fight me. So he says, Tim Drake, I love him, but he's not the best Robin. Dick Grayson was born to be Robin. Tim had to work at it, and that's why it made his character great. When he and young Dick met in that great Zero Hour crossover issue – oh, man, I wish there was some way we could follow Zero Hour. Hmm. Anyway, uh, Tim acknowledged <laughs> that he wasn't the natural that Dick was at Super Heroics. Tim working at something he was so desperately wanted to be part of his character, so he can't be the best because part of his journey is trying to be that. He may be the best developed Robin, character-wise, at least during the Robin years. I'll give you that. Okay, I love Chris's circular logic there about he can't be the best because he's trying to be. I get what you're trying to say, Chris, but dude, Tim Drake's the best. Because of everything they put into the character, him trying to live up to Dick's legacy. It's just like Wally is a better Flash than Barry, and Wally's trying to live up to Barry's Legacy. He's trying, and that's okay. So, anyway. Uh, What did you find out about Brink Stevens? uh, She was married to Dave Stevens for one year. (laughs) Okay. Got so, okay. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, Chris continues. Shag the Prude was an interesting way to start the issue, but I must admit I was surprised by the amount of skin seen in the Angel and the Ape entry then and now. I had no idea Foglio did dirty comics. Shame. How did I hate you to not know that? Uh, yeah, he very dirty com Very dirty comics. Uh, I hate to keep bagging on everything you said, Shag, but wow. I have, no, dude, Chris, it's really fun. He says, but I have to agree with Rob <laughs> on the elemental firestorm. If sales were that bad, just cancel the book. Changing a character to where they're unrecognizable seems silly to me. Plus, Ostrander and Mandrake could have made some creator participation coin had they went and made their own fire elemental. I just don't understand that thinking. Uh, we'll come back to the comment in just a bit. So right. uh, back to Nightwing here. Michael Bailey chimed in after Chris and says, Dick was born to be Nightwing. I'm with Shag on this. Because I said he was born to be Nightwing, not Robin. Siskoid says, sure. But Siskoid, of course, from the Firewater Podcast Network shows such as Zero Hour Strikes, uh, Ohatmu, or not anymore. He says, sure. But uh, Dick was also a great Robin and a damn fine Batman. Dick Grayson is just a great character no matter what costume he wears. Yeah, I'll tell you, Cisco is not wrong about that. Dick Grayson is an amazing character. Then Mark Badger, uh, Mark Baker Wright chimes in from the Black Rock. Wow, Mark Badger wrote in? Cool. Mark Badger, (laughs) Mark Baker Wright from Black Rock Toy Box chimes in. He says, uh, for what it's worth, even if I grant the stipulation that Dick was born to be Robin and Tim had to work for it, that's just another reason to say Tim's better in my humble opinion. All right, Mark. I would agree with him on that. Uh, Chris Franklin came back in and he said uh, regarding the issue, he says, I loved it when Tom Taggart did his mixed media stuff. I think Patrick Man, def- Patchwork Man definitely made it in based on his visual alone. And if you can get Taggart to produce something like this, why not? Yeah, I agree, Chris. I, that's one of the things I did like about the Loose Leaf is that they were willing to shake up the format uh, a bit. And I think because they were Loose Leaf pages, I think it, it, it lent more to that, like the death entry or whatever. And so I liked <laughs> all that kind of stuff. That's really cool. 
I'm just amazed that uh, Chris's feedback isn't bagging on me in one of the lines, so that's wild. That's great. Uh, David uh, David Ace Gutierrez come back, followed up with some stuff about we were talking about the uh, snapper car thing, and uh, David accuses Chris of being a snapper apologist, and then Chris says, uh, snapper is Miles Davis compared to the Super Friends Marvin. <laughs> that is something I really love, because Chris, uh, Chris is like one of the most agreeable people you're ever going to meet. And I just love the fact that, like, when Marvin comes up, he just becomes super angry fan and how much he hates Marvin. Like, that, like there's so few things that, Chris, that piss Chris off that much. But then you just you just talk about Marvin, and then all of a sudden he's just like, oh, I hate that stupid guy. It's just, it's just so funny. He just hulks out almost when, when Marvin comes up. Well, this brought forward an interesting question from a new listener, Rudy G. Rudy says, how would you rank the following Justice League support staff? So what he's given us is a list of support staff for the Justice League, and we're to put them in rank of, I guess, either our favorite or usefulness or whatever uh, criteria we choose to use. And those include Snapper Carr, Marvin, Wendy, Dale Gunn, Sue Dibney, Catherine Colbert, and Yaz. So uh, are you familiar with all these characters, I hope, Rob? Uh, no. <laughs> Who don't you know? Who the hell is Yaz? Who Who's the Yaz? hell is Yaz? <laughs> what is that? I'm actually really glad you don't know him. Um, and, and it's sort of telling. He is from this absolutely terrible period of the Justice League, right after Zero Hour, uh, when oh, Wonder yeah. Woman was when Wonder Woman was in charge of the league, that's not the problem. It's not that it was not her fault. It was just a poorly written and drawn comic. They actually put Blue Devil on the team, so I was oh, super wow, excited. Yeah. But it was just terrible. And they're living on a spaceship um, that they stole from the Overmaster. And on board, they meet this little tiny, yeah, of course, a dinosaur. He's a little tiny dinosaur guy. And he is hangs out up on the ship, and, and, and he helps them out. And it's ridiculous. So – uh, why don't you go first? How would you rank your characters? Uh, do, how are we doing this? Are we favorite? I, are we doing? I don't any? know. I don't. Ru, Rudy didn't specify how I'm he wants you. us to rank Pick. these. Well, okay. I, I guess I'm going to go with um, a proof of concept, in that to me it's like the most useful as okay. a support staff, as opposed okay. to favorites. Okay. Uh, so I would say the number one would be Dale Gunn because he actually had some, you know, like he could do stuff. So okay. I like that a lot. So he would be number one. Uh, and then I would probably put uh, – uh, like, you know, but then even that doesn't make sense because Marvin and Wendy weren't really useful as support staff. They were trainees. So f- screw it. I'm just going to do favorites. Forget it. <laughs> okay. I'm going to do favorites. Okay. I'm going to say Dale Gunn, Marvin and Wendy, Sue Dibney, Catherine Colbert – Yaz, and then that loser snapper car. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Interesting list. I mean, entirely wrong, but interesting. So uh, I'll, I'll go from usefulness, which also ties into my my favorites. Um, number one, unquestionably, on this entire list, and I am ashamed of you for not getting it, is Catherine Colbert. She is absolutely the most useful person on this list. She runs the Paris Embassy. Eventually, she sort of becomes the team leader, like from the office, the administrative team leader, eventually. So she's brilliant. Catherine Colbert's number one. Uh, probably Dale Gunn is second, yeah, because he was pretty useful in the in the Detroit bunker. Then Sue Dibney, because she also became extremely useful during the Just League Europe era, uh, running the computers, things like that. So you, you got to go there. Um, then you get, uh, what am I left with? Snapper Mar- Car, Marvin, Marvin Wendy, Wendy, and Snapper Yaz. And Yaz. Yeah. Mm. Did you even put the Yaz on the list? <laughs> I put him above Snapper. Okay. Uh, I would say then you get Wondermutt, Gleek, um, pretty much everyone else useless. Then you get Snapper Car, Marvin, Wendy, and Yaz. That's that's where I'm going. All with. right. Okay. So, 
Okay. All right. They were from our good buddy Cisco again. He says, uh, so glad the Nimbus uh, persona didn't take. The mist is so great in the Jack Knight stories. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Siskoid. Uh, when James Robinson brought him back to the mist, it was all oh, absolutely perfect. And he says, Starfire, what I read of the post-New 52 series, and he says, series, not her appearance in the Red Hood Arsenal comic. He says, her series was really, really saved her. Lovely stuff. You should check it out if you can check. Well, you know what? I think it's on the DC app, so maybe I will. Uh, Cisco also says, Rob, if you don't care for the Wave Rider Monarch Temporal Anomaly, anomaly stuff, which I don't, you're going to suffer when you listen to Zero Hour Strikes. We have to talk about that a lot. Well, uh, I will say it's a, it's a testament to the podcasting skills of Cisco and Boss that I enjoy that show, uh, whether it was the Invasion show or the – like they, they are just dedicated to covering series I don't give a shit about. Uh, but I really <laughs> – <laughs> but I really enjoy the show and that's because uh, that's they're really good at making it seem entertaining. So, so you know, yeah, I'm not looking forward to hearing about Wave Rider, but, but I'll enjoy the show anyway. Fair enough. All right. They heard my buddy, uh, heard from my buddy Keith G. Baker. He says the elemental firestorm, like every other non Ronnie professor incarnation, was an interesting side story that lasted way too long and is best forgotten. Which is followed up by Slobberknocker, which, by the way, has one of the greatest handles of all time. Slobberknocker says, I remember the Elemental Firestorm being an extremely fun run. If I remember correctly, I didn't think it was long enough. Slobberknocker, I'm right there with you. The Elemental Firestorm was fantastic, and there was a lot of opportunities there. And Keith is just an old mean curmudgeon, so don't worry about that. Uh, and he's, he would tell me I'm right on that curmudgeon part. Then we heard from my buddy Jeff R. He says, Starfire was my favorite new Teen Titan. Alien pun names and uncanny pupils and all. Uh, but she hasn't been served well since the good part of the Wolfman run. Like most of those characters so far, it's someone else's fault. In this case, it's bad decisions regarding Nightwing. See, Nightwing should have stayed a Teen Titan. Going back to Gotham or Bloodhaven is a regression. Nightwing is a leader, not a follower. Should only show up in the same state as Gotham wearing the Batsuit and making that boneheaded decision ruined Starfire. I don't know if the deeply awful Mirage plotline came out of the writer's block or a mandate from the Bat office. I think that was writer's block, uh, Jeff, by the way. Anyway, it goes on to say that Starfire, Starfire is a character defined by divided loyalties. She has responsibilities as a princess or as a rebel back home that she's avoiding. She needs a reason for that. She needs a strong connection to Earth for that to work, and there's nobody who can replace Dick Grayson in that role. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting thought. Interesting take on uh, Starfire I hadn't thought about. All right. Uh, we've got a comment from David Ace Gutierrez, uh, and he says, you know I love these who's who shows, and opening with an argument was a master stroke. Speaking of master strokes, I'm a thousand percent any Emmanuel talk. Oh my did god! You, did you guys? I think that's that two true freak show. Do you guys ever catch that series where Sylvia Crystal returned to the role in a weekly series? She wouldn't recount the adventures of her younger days. She would recount the adventures of her younger days to one-time Bond George Lazenby, young Emmanuel played by actress Marcella Wallerstein. Uh, I quite liked Monique Gabrielle's brief stint in the role. She's more my type, but I do love me some Gemser. As for Krista Allen, now we're talking. A guy I know uh, worked on her Emmanuel movie series and says she's just the nicest lady. Always great to hear. That's very cool. I like knowing that. Monique Gabrielle and Krista Allen, you have my attention. That's fair. Okay. Uh, then David goes on to say, by the way, David is the owner-operator of the Katana Banana. He says, uh, Dick Grayson is the best Robin, and I've said it before. I liked him, but he just smacks of Robin by committee. He's too much of a reaction against Jason Todd's Mark II for my taste, but in the spirit of full disclosure, I'm a Todd fan. 
Well, there you go. And Rob voted to kill your favorite. That's why he never gets over it. And, and every, all of you should know when, when David says he's a who's who fan, he really means it because this is what happens. <laughs> and Shag, Shag will back me up on this. This is what happens every Sunday. When this is we like don't, behind the music right here, folks. Yeah, this is behind the music. This is what happens every Sunday when we don't post a who's who show. Shag and I post the show. Generally, Shag puts it up around noon, right? And then uh, it'll be probably about – because David's up by that point. It'll be about three minutes after the episode <laughs> posts where uh, we get a text from David to Shag and I, and it'll be name of show, question mark, okay. And that's his dis- – that's the way him letting us know that he's disappointed that it's not who's who. Whatever the show is that we put up, JLI or Fire or Water or Power Records, it doesn't matter. It could be the David Ace Gutierrez tribute podcast. He's disappointed <laughs> that it's not who's who. So, yeah, he's always disappointed when we don't do, don't do who's who. That's what it's like being his friend. Learn to live with dis- disappointment, David. No. Um, oh, wait. He's Rob's friend. He already does. So anyway, uh, they were from Michael Crit. Wow. You like that? I got snuck it right fired. in. Uh, we, we, that's the first shot fired? Really? Have you not been paying attention for the last two hours? No. Then we were from Michael Kramer. He says, I always liked the cartoony look of Angel in the ape entry. It's funny, but despite Angel being topless and everyone being maimed or killed in the background, I actually thought I could sell the characters as a concept for an animated series. Um, maybe an HBO series at that point, at least with that picture I'm thinking. Anyway, he goes on about The Flash. He says, I really enjoyed the art on it, and I was collecting the trial of Barry Allen at this point, and I, um, and it, the look was almost identical. Okay, so we're talking about the Barry Allen Flash one. All right. And he says, on the other hand, it's funny to me that Barry is drawn being so super muscular. I always picture Flash as being lean. Yes, they have muscles, but they don't usually come off looking like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Still, this entry made me more interested in Barry's run as the Flash, and I started reading through the greatest Flash stories ever told to get to know him better. Look at that. Who's who did its job? That's fantastic. Very cool. Uh, he also points out, he says, that thing that always stood out to me about Lady Shiva's entry was that she was holding the two size. Uh, she had three thugs down on the ground, but neither the thugs nor the size had so much of a, dro- of a drop of blood on them. That's mm. I didn't even notice any of that. I guess she's just that good with them. <laughs> right. Uh, then he said about Wave Rider, I was always a big fan of this character, and a, a lot of it has to do with the fact that Armageddon 2001 was the first major event I followed after my return to the DC Universe after Death in the Family. Wave Rider's biggest and best claim to fame would come about a year or so later when they used him to facilitate the return of the Justice Society from Ragnarok, a.k.a. Editorial Limbo, a place they seem to keep finding themselves in. Well, you're not wrong about that. Then, uh, then we heard from Doug Van Diver, and he says, There is no doubt that we're living in an age of with a wealth of characters in media. Just among DC properties on the CW shows alone, there's a wealth of characters in live action. And he goes off and he mentions folks like Wave Rider, I'm sorry, uh, Wild Dog, Draga, Kilgore, Mason Trollbridge, but then you have Wave Rider. Quote, we like how the name Wave Rider sounds, but we don't care particularly about anything else having to do with them, end quote, is what I imagine the Arrowverse creators were saying, and that's a shame, if you do like the comics character. Since the name's been used and repurposed as the name of the ship on Legends of Tomorrow, shucks, I guess we won't be seeing the Wave Rider character anytime soon in any of the Arrowverse shows. Oh well, can't have everything, I guess, but you can have Wild Dog. <laughs> now here's the amazing thing. We covered Wave Rider last time. And I've been watching the Legends of Tomorrow TV show now off and on for a year or so. I've been back into it. And I didn't even think of it to even mention it because, like, I, I don't know why. When I first had the name of the ship, you know, a couple years ago, I was like, oh, Wave Rider. I never thought about it one, ever again being connected to the Matthew Rider Wave Rider. So it didn't even occur to me. So I'm embarrassed to say. Thanks, Doug. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, we've got a comment from Robert Ward. He says, I should have clarified that I was disappointed in myself. Uh, he's referring to, he says, when I saw the artwork for Vicky Vale by Mark Hempel and didn't like it, I assume you two would zip where you zapped. It was a painful reminder that I should sit back and just allow myself to enjoy the cards by you two free from expectations. I, well, you shouldn't be disappointed in yourself, Robert. It's fine that you didn't like it. I just... I under I, I can understand why people didn't like it because it is very stylized, but I don't know. I just I like the, the variety of it. But um, admonishing yourself for not knowing which direction we're going to go, you shouldn't do that at all because I think we're pretty darn unpredictable in that regard. <laughs> That's true. Uh, then we heard from Michael Ridge who says, I fell in love with Angel in the Showcase 100th issue special. I thought Lois and Angel proved that they were heroes despite being ordinary people. They got all their skills and abilities from their own work and study without Batman's superpower. You know, Michael, you're right. They were so great in Showcase number 100. I love, love, love that comic. Then we heard from my buddy Martin Gray from the Too Dangerous for Girl blog. He says, that Angel in the 8th pick is disgraceful. A fully grown monkey man drawing a nude of a young woman he first knew when she was a kid? Skeevy, thy name is Sam. Uh, then he says, a Firestorm is nicely drawn, but I absolutely hate the design of this version of the Firestorm. It's Firestorm for teenagers who like poems. <laughs> I can't even get it out because he's right. Um, it's Firestorm for teenagers who like the poems by goth girls printed in Sandman letter columns. Oh, my God. <laughs> You're not wrong. harsh. That's harsh, Mark. You're not wrong. And I did read the same in letter column, so that's fair. There you go. <laughs> Uh, he, he also mentioned, he says, the striking Johnny Thunder and Starchy, Joe, very well done, Joe Potato should have shared a page as minor DC detectives. They could have formed an agency with the dullest dishwater Jason Bard and skeevy Sam Simeon. You know, it's funny. They didn't, the, who, the, uh, the, these, uh, these, this series was who never did a split page. They could have. Right. Right. But they never did. Hmm. All right, then he goes, Shag, try the DCU Starfire series by Jimmy Palmiotti and Amanda Connor, Emanuela Lupacino, and Ray McCarthy. It's delightful. Starfire is compassionate, courageous, brave, naive, smart, loyal, and for once her personality is more rounded than her boobs. Uh, <laughs> it's the second person recommending I try that series, so maybe I'll have to. And then he says, I really like the Hippolyta drawing. She looks wonderfully regal. Put this brunette version in a fighting pose, and it's just Diana. But in robes, it can only be Hippolyta. Uh, or Hippolyta. That'll come back in a bit anyway. And dig the fantastic way Cynthia Martin draws those folds. Hmm, very cool. Okay. And then he says, Zoom's I Ching entry is truly marvelous. Well done, matey. Uh, again, we agree. And uh, stay tuned. We're going to get to another Zoom 2 listing at the end of the uh, end of this segment. Then we heard from Mike Dynas, and he says, Since I never bought the Loose Leaf Who's Who, I enjoyed seeing all these entries I never would have come across. My favorite being Wave Rider, as I remember buying a couple of those Armageddon 2001 annuals. And without reading all those annuals or even that um, – and even being that invested in Armageddon 2001, even I knew that Captain Adam was supposed to be Monarch. It must have been a very badly kept secret, which prompted the change. Ah. All right, Mike Dynas, congratulations. Uh, this is coming out of the blue here, buddy. But uh, you just said you never bought the Loose Leaf Who's Who, so I am on the spot here saying I am going to mail you one of these Loose Leaf Who's Who I just bought in Arizona. So, Mike, contact me and send me your address, and I'll pop it in the mail to you, buddy. Congratulations. Don't send him your address, Mike. He's going to show up at your house. 
<laughs> he's not wrong. He's not wrong. <laughs> I mean, he'll have the who's who with him. I mean, he's not he's not lying about that, but he's also going to be there. Uh, so <laughs> Liz Ann Oswald, who has her own YouTube channel, says uh, impressive podcast, most impressive. I love you. She enters she enters everything with the Darth Vader thing. Uh, uh, hey, uh, cool. <laughs> hey, cool. Chris got a letter published. Congrats. Wow, I agree with Rob. The angel and the ape image is fine. I mean, it's mostly like any life studies class. Artists have nude models all the time. In fact, she's wearing more clothes than most, and she's being badass. She's kicking butt and taking names. Thank you, Lizanne. Yes, I thank you for sticking up for that that entry. All right, fair enough. I mean, it's a fun entry. It is. I just, uh, I was, you know, I was, I was, I felt the lady deserved uh, to be treated better. That's all. But apparently, I'm wrong. So. All right, Slobberknocker, we love him, wrote it back in. He goes, I don't know what Shag does not like about the Angel and the Ape, Angel and the Ape Who's Who entry. I looked at it for a long time, very hard and often, and I found it quite good. <laughs> All right. Uh, Jawsome one. Yeah, great, great handle. He says, the new, uh, there's the quote here, the new Who's Who blog is here. The new Who's Who blog is here. I'm somebody now. Millions of people listen to this blog every day. Things are going to start happening to me now. Thanks for the shout out, guys. I played it over and over for my wife and kids. You could actually hear their eyes roll. It was great. <laughs> uh, and he mentions, I also noticed that it seems that Rob's audio quality has improved tremendously from the early days. Did he get new equipment at some point or is this just my imagination? Uh, no, it is not your imagination. Uh, and I have to say, I get a, a shout out to our fellow, podca- fellow podcasters. Um, Mike Gillis and Casey Dorn from the Radio vs. the Martians because they were the reason that I have this wonderful new Blue Yeti mic and that uh, if you go and listen to their show – and you should because it's a really great show uh, – they asked me to design uh, all the new uh, the new logo for their show and all the ancillary artwork. And so I did all that and they paid me for it and I will say they paid me pretty handsomely. And, um, you know, podcasting for the longest time pre-Patreon was kind of a hobby for me. And so investing in a really expensive microphone was just something I felt a little guilty about. But when I had this sort of money dumped in my lap from a fellow podcast – it just felt like it was destined. So I took the money that I earned from Mike and, and Casey and bought a new microphone for the Fine Water Podcast. So it's all time is a flat circle. It all just works out. So uh, thank you for noticing. I thought you were going to say that they wouldn't let you on their show with the crappy quality mic you had. So you went kind well, of that, that is also too. That is like the best sounding podcast out there. But but yeah, no, they were very generous with their with their with they paid me. They paid me more than even I really expected, which is like they're the greatest client ever. So and it also they do a great show. Fantastic. Uh, Jocelyn goes on to say, I do have one request. I love the theme song from the Batman Pajamas, but no matter how many times I've listened to it, I can't seem to make out all the names. He says he's kind of hard of hearing. Does anyone? have the lyrics posted anywhere well i don't have them posted but i have them right here in writing i'm going to read them to you and i did confirm with daniel cynical adams of the bad man pajamas so you're ready here they go i will not be singing them i will kirk song speak it at best aquaman and superman you should know who those are animal man and plastic man firestorm the nuclear man batman and hawkman and here's the one everyone asks about 2D Man, yes, the number two in the letter D. We'll get back to this. 2D Man and Our Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC Who's Who. Ultra Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, which is simply Hippolyta pronounced incorrectly to force the rhyme. He admitted to that. Phantom Stranger, Etchergan, Aresia, that's Green Lantern, uh, Hal Jordan's creepy, skeevy girlfriend situation there, and Woozy Winks. 
Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitz... I can't, I can't say this right. Mr. Mitz... Mr. Mitzy Pidelik? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's Who. And then and, there's a bunch of musical cues. And then uh, there's a pause, and then we get, oh man, we forgot Slipknot. <laughs> so here's the deal. Uh, I, I reached out to Daniel Adams. We talked about it. And the one that everyone gets tripped up on is 2D Man. And there's a reason for that. Because 2D Man never appeared in Who's Who. Sorry, guys. Or a DC comic, for that matter. Um, 2D Man is a villain from Batman Beyond. Now, at one point, Zoom, you can already did suggest that 2D Man was a adversary of the atom that shrank sideways. And knowing uh, Zoom's eidetic memory, he may absolutely be right. But I couldn't find a reference to it online. Anyway, uh, according to Daniel, apparently... 2D Man was added on the fly while they were recording, was not in the original shorter lyrics. And he says he picked 2D Man, basically he went out and he Googled a whole, like every DC villain. And 2D Man appeared on the list, because he's from Batman Beyond, and he grabbed it because he was trying to get as many people with the word man in their name. So yes, we ended up with someone that's not actually in Who's Who, so that makes it kind of fun. Now a lot of people thought it was 2D, like 2D from Facts of Life, by the way, it was also not in a DC comic. Anyway, he did, and then we did talk about uh, Hippolyta, which is Hippolyta. He said he mispronounced it to make the rhyme work. Um, and then, by the way, if you like that song, go back and listen to Who's Who in Star Trek and Who's Who in the Legion. And they came back with the same music but new lyrics and did two more Who's Who uh, theme songs, which are freaking amazing as well. So uh, the Bad Mama Jamas, which is, again, Daniel Cynical Adams and Ashton Burge. They're absolutely great guys. I've hung out with them. I adore them both, and uh, the song's great. And I'm glad you, uh, you asked. Yeah, it's a great song. They did – they really – they did it. Remember when we asked them to do it? We're like, could you guys write a thing about who's who? Like, it just seemed ridiculous, but they really delivered, and that's why we're we're always, we're going to use it on every episode until the bitter end of this series. Oh, absolutely. So, all right. Uh, then we heard from Philemon, who is president of the Jericho Fan Club, who, by the way, got an upgrade recently because Jericho's a TV star now, which is crazy. Uh, Philemon writes, "Angel and the Ape." I want to gush about this entry, but Shag's sudden bout of consciousness uh, or conscience would make it seem like I'm a pervert. I will simply say that it's one of those singular panels that tells a complete story in a single image, rewards deep observation with this myriad of Easter eggs, and is equal parts funny and sexy. All right, fair enough. Then he says, the Dial Age concept. However, it is the perfect crystallization of Silver Age DC's wildly imaginative and silly ethos, and I will support it every time I give him the opportunity. Well, there you go. There's the Philemon I was looking for. You're very reliable. Thank you, sir. (laughs) And he wrote, as a child of the 1980s, this uh, – you're talking about Johnny Thunder, by the way, uh, the, the, the detective version. As a child of the 1980s, this is my version of the Thunder legacy, and I will always prefer her over uh, either of the JSA-affiliated average guy with the Magic Genie offerings. The irony is that I didn't read the miniseries until my adulthood. Private Investigator Thunder is one of a handful of characters who seem to be super familiar thanks largely, largely to the ubiquitous house ads that were run constantly during the mid uh, mid to late 1980s. Fellow gumshoe Nathaniel Dusk, and I can't believe it's not John Jones, Gem Son of Saturn, are also on that list. That's hilarious, because you know what? I feel the same way. I saw those house hats over and over and over. I bet you uh, Slash Maraud is one of those, and Silver Blade <laughs> are probably on your list of people, too, because I saw the house hats so many times. So I totally understand where you're coming from, Philemon. 
She also had a great visual. She was in that white suit. Like mm-hmm. she just looked really yeah. cool, you know. So yeah, I, I remember that. The uh, the she always had a half pager, and it, it tended to run on another half page with the America versus the Justice Society oh, uh, miniseries, okay. <laughs> which I loved. Uh, anyway, he continues. He says, "Starfire, Tom Grumman is criminally underrated. I don't think there is anyone who couldn't uh, who wouldn't choose George Perez as the Titans artist, but Grumman is a fantastic runner-up. His Starfire here is a great example of this in that it is classic, clean, and yes, sexy." Jag, I understand your criticism of Corey, even if I disagree with it. Where we can't see eye to eye is your favorable feelings about Anna Diop's performance in the Titans TV show. I already mentioned I didn't love anybody's characterizations in the series, but I can almost see the heroes I loved in the performances of every other actor except her. She had none of Corey's heart, passion, otherness, or grace. In my opinion, she was the lowest point in a show that was kind of filled with low points. Mm, ouch. Okay. Mm. Well, I'm curious to see uh, what you think of season two. So then Velvet Tiger says, true story in my binder, Velvet Tiger is filed away with the impact characters because she looks like the sort of generic character that a 90s indie comic would create. Like all the rest of the impact characters, I've never read any story with her or they um, or have been bothered to actually read this entry. Ouch. Poor Velvet Tiger, although she really deserved it. Fair enough. Then we heard from Kevin from New Orleans. He says the little girl, Lords of Chaos. Okay, so um, this is the Dr. Fate picture. Remember there was a little girl holding a red balloon and it was very creepy? And the mm-hmm. Dr. Fate image uh, – or Lords of Order and Chaos. That's what it was. And he says the little girl from the Lords of Chaos is from Sandman in the Seasons of Mist storyline. And when he said that, I had kind of a V8 moment. I'm like, oh, that does seem familiar. Okay. I need to go back and reread that series. I only read it the one time. Uh, so I should go back and reread them. I mean, it's a classic. So I don't think I've read it since it finished. I mean, I know I read the, the first couple trades a few times, but it was all back then in the '90s. So yeah, I mean, it's probably probably due for a reread. I've been buying the volumes for my girlfriend Kelly because for her birthday I got her volume one signed by Neil Gaiman. So I've been following up and giving her subsequent volumes. So now now I have no reason because they you know I can just pull them off the bookshelf now. Yes, Rob got his girlfriend one of the greatest birthday gifts of all time. So <laughs> I, had well I, I had to throw I, that in. I I kn- I totally I, you know what you deserve it though. <laughs> I was very proud of that. Okay, so we got a comment from Rick G. Uh, he says apart from the two or three big names, this issue more than any other is like a giant black hole that characters entered into and. We're never heard again. Oh my gosh! <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, shouldn't um, shouldn't the uh, Wanderers have been in that issue then, Rick? <laughs> Seriously, oh yeah, thank thank you. That really made me laugh, Rick. Thank you, uh, Mike Gillis. The aforementioned Mike Gillis from Raider versus the Martians and podcast de La Vista says, "I'm a bit surprised you guys couldn't think of a costume update that stuck, other than the Robin Tim Drake redesign by Neil Adams." Adams' most famous redesign is Green Arrow's 1970s costume, which has stuck around as his default classic look ever since. Okay, two things. One, I, ca- I do see Mike's point. Oh, yeah, I totally copped to that. But, oh, ouch. But, 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 and I don't know if you were thinking this, Shag, but I was, and I just didn't say it, is that in my mind, uh, when I think of redesigns that never stick, it is post-era where these characters have been starting to put on merchandise. Hmm. The Green Arrow of, of Raven Bolt number 85, which is the debut of that look, is pre-merchandise, really. You know what I mean? So to me, it's like the Green Arrow was, mer- was, was, was grandfathered in. Like the Mego doll, it looks like the Neil Adams version. When I think of, of costumes that, that don't stick around because they have to stay on merchandise, it's really, I think, of the 80s and beyond where these characters started appearing on T-shirts, calendars, all that stuff all over the – basically post-JLGLP2. 
PBHN style guide. That is what I was thinking. I didn't say that explicitly, so I understand Mike's point, but that's what I had in my head when we were talking about it. That was a really nice justification for why you're not wrong. Um, Thank you. But uh, I, I was not thinking about it that deeply. I would say it absolutely qualified. I think that was a good call by Mike, and I think we missed it. And um, I, I, you know, in my mind, I was thinking more than '90s redesigns because everyone got an update in the '90s. But no, I, I think uh, Green Arrow is absolutely fair. All right. All right. Uh, then we hear from Mike Atchison, and he says, I can't disagree with Shag more on his opinion of Starfire. Well, actually, Mike, I bet you can. But anyway, uh, he says, I certainly respect and value your opinion, Shag. <laughs> guy, no, I don't, you don't need to do that. What? <laughs> anyway, he says, and I agree that Coriander has been mishandled many times post-1980s Wolfman Perez. However, in the original canon, which is what sticks with me, she was much more complex character. Yes, she was scantily clad, but she was uh, oblivious to her projected sexiness. She was naive to Earth ways and customs, but what alien wouldn't be? She was fierce, fearless, and combat savvy, yet when people tend to remember first is sexiness. Maybe it's the understandable ba- maybe it's understandable based on other renditions of her character, but I choose to remember the original portrayal. She certainly deserves better than being considered a vapid airhead cheesecake girl. Hmm. All right, fair enough. You know, Mike, I have not read all the Wolfman Perez Titans. I've gotten a little way into it, and then I, for whatever reason, I get distracted. I own it all. I just need to finish it. So maybe I haven't given her enough a fair shake in those issues. So I, um, yeah, maybe I, maybe I owe them back uh, a second try. They were from Damian Whiter, who uh, this month I'm awarding him the Diablo Frank Prose Award because of how much Damian wrote this time. He says uh, it's interesting that Todd McFarlane is suggested for Firestorm, and Marco Yuri says he hopes Todd draws something in Who's Who. Am I misremembering, or do they? They announced that Todd would draw Catwoman, and then they have to apologize when he blows the deadline. Oh, man, that is interesting. I wonder where they announced it, and that would just feed Rob's hatred of Todd McFarlane. Very interesting. Mm. Eh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then he goes on to say Firestorm. I love the elemental Firestorm. Mandrick is fantastic. Shag is also right that Rob needs to read this run. It's amazing. Shag is also right to describe it as mature. It's interesting how many mature comics could be passed by the comics code, but a number of intensely immature comics need to be released as adults only. Uh, he says, I think part of the success of the elemental Firestorm artistically, he says, uh, success, I don't know how well it sold, was down to the reaction of the supporting cast to the change. This worked because we knew Lorraine and Martin and the others. Hmm. That's a good point, and I like how he kept saying Shag was right. Uh, then he says, Gareth Beck, I remember being intensely irritated when I realized his wife is named Mary Jane, as in marijuana, and her father was called Canis Biz, as in cannabis. Oh, Lord. Oh, I think geez. I made that connection reading this entry in 1991, and I thought it was childish joke that shouldn't be sullied my serious comics. I <laughs> never put that together until I read your comment. Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah, and, and the father's a crime lord, too, so it all sort of works together. This is Johnny Thunder. Let's start with the creator credits. Issue number one of Johnny Thunder features the behind-the-scenes feature by Roy Thomas about the creation of Johnny and includes early sketches by early Cologne, which look very like the face that Giordano draws with her. I'm surprised that she's only credited to Roy, Ernie, and Dick, as I'm sure that article mentions Gary, Jerry Conway and Dan Thomas as vital in her development. Because I think you were uh, – weren't you questioning the, the, the credits for Johnny Thunder when we were coming? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. It's interesting. I guess maybe they figured you can only have so many names as a creator credit. You know, yeah. you can have five people on there. Uh, he says, uh, Patrick Man, great creepy image. I love the issue where Steve was written by Steve Bissett about him, where Abby finds all of him apart from his head. The hug is one of the most beautiful horror images I've ever seen. Yeah, that's a really good issue. 
Mm. Uh, and then it goes on to comment about certain artists that appeared in Who's Who, and I just thought this was really interesting. It says, Jason Pearson was one of the Gaijin Studios, which was uh, which had a changing roster over the years to include Cully Hamner, Brian Stelfreeze, Joe Phillips, Carl Story, Adam Hughes, Chris Sprouse, Carl Story, and more. They also linked to the Cranial Impact Studios, which featured Mike Waringo, Richard Case, Chuck Wozniak, uh, Chris Wozniak, and these two studios between them feature almost every artist who became a huge star immediately post image. You know, that's fascinating because, I mean, he just rattled off a million star, uh, amazing 90s artists that I love, and most of which probably don't get enough credit nowadays as being amazingly talented. Because uh, a lot of these folks are forgotten. I'm sure Rob doesn't even know who some of these folks are. But they, um, and they're all great artists from that period of time. Mm. So was was Yaz part of that studio as well? Yeah, Yaz was remember? absolutely okay. part of that studio. Right. Thank mm-hmm. you. Thank you. Yep. Uh, Wolfgang Hartz uh, says, The scene of Crisis on Infinite Earths with Johnny Thunder and the other detectives finding the dead body of Angleman was from the 11th issue, not the first. Thank you for the correction, Wolfgang. I, that, I, I, I believe you, but I just seem to remember like it just being really early on in the series. Like the, that, I was like, wow, they're really bumping off characters right at the beginning. But, uh, but I, I take your word for it. Well, I just read through issue three the other night, and uh, I'm rereading it, and uh, it's not mentioned yet. So okay, Wolf- right. Wolfgang Hart might be right. So. I'm sure he is. Uh, then we heard from Michael Wagner. who says, this is my first loose leaf issue, all because of Tim Drake, Robin. Awesome. Love that. Again, who's who? Uh, now, I guess in this case, it did the opposite. It didn't do its job as getting people interested in characters. Instead, it got people to buy who's who because of the characters. That's cool. They were from Rudy G. Uh, I mentioned uh, Rudy earlier, and Rudy says, I really enjoy this podcast. I'm a new listener, and I can't get enough of your network. Your personal insight and opinions create an enjoyable discussion uh, of what are basically encyclopedic entries. Thank you, Rudy. I appreciate that. Uh, he says, Rob, I share your indifference and or boredom <laughs> with Legion five years later. Not only, not only does deconstructed, grim and gritty angst-ridden Legion uninterest me, but the Keith Giffen art was overly stylized and unappealing. Maybe Zack Snyder was a <laughs> Legion five years later fan. <laughs> My God. <laughs> uh, I thought of you in the Legion 5YL last night, Rob, when I was reading Crisis, and I get to a page that's a nine-panel grid. But it, first of all, it's drawn by George Perez, so it's astonishing. But it's uh, Brainiac and the like, the robotic superpowers version of Ro- Brainiac, and he's like got all these you know thought balloons. But it's uh, it's laid out in nine panel grid, and I thought, ah, oh, hey, it's like a five whale, but a five whale <laughs> yeah, that Rob just, would like. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. All right. Then we heard from Diablo Frank from the World Spine Podcast Network and from shows such as Marvel Superheroes Podcast and many more. And Frank has to say a about lot the ele- about the element. What's he say? A lot. Yeah, well, of course. <laughs> uh, <if> I, <laughs> you know what? We haven't said this in a long time. But, folks, if you don't read Frank's comments on the website uh, from Who's Who, you're really missing out. I mean, th- some of it is insightful. Some of it's crazy pants. Some of it's, uh, frankly, offensive. But all of it is damn interesting. It really is. So, uh, anyway, he goes on to say uh, about elemental firestorm. He says, my brain always sees the elemental firestorm as fur-lined, meaning like around a scholar, like black cat or voodoo. Don't recall if that's mandrake-specific or overall. He looks like Lion-O, talking about the Thundercats. I have no use for anything after the blank slate poser period of that run. Way too far afield of the original concept. Far too derivative Swamp Thing, and clearly afterwards nobody wanted to write the character for the five years it took for someone to bother hand-waving this incarnation away. I have to disagree with Frank, uh, Chris Franklin. Thank you for disagreeing with Chris Franklin. I appreciate that since he bagged on me so much. He says, I have to disagree with Chris Franklin's suggestion that Ostrander and Mandrake could have just taken their um, – uh, had 
could have just taken their version elsewhere for a creator-owned book because nobody would have read it without Firestorm logo on the cover. See, that's where my position is. That, that yes, they create an interesting character that maybe wasn't enough like Firestorm, but if they tried to sell it on its own, no one would have bought it. You know, so this way, connecting to the Firestorm legacy, it gave him a chance to do that, and it, it pushed Firestorm forward into an interesting territory that I was okay with. All right, then uh, he made a comment about Kilgore. Remember, Rob, you were you were questioning how to pronounce because it it's got a yes. percent symbol in it, right? So he says Kilgore is the password requir- requiring a special character. <laughs> Joke would have worked better if I didn't stutter over it. Um, then about Lady Shiva, he says she is one of my favorite benchmark characters who defines the skill power hi- hierarchy of their particular discipline. Plus, she's just a fun mixer in any given story. When she shows up, you, you know Kilgore just got real. Uh, one of my favorites at DC and the coolest entry of the issue. Hmm, interesting. Okay. He also he says, uh, all I can think of while looking at Tom Taggart's Patrick Man entry is how bad I want to up the darkness and contrast to remove those matte lines. I thought the same thing. <laughs> you could have, you could fix that so easy. You're, um, you're being very George Lucas there, Frank. I say, must remove the bad lines from my TIE fighters. <laughs> wow. Um, then he goes on to say about Starfire. Because I am not usually uncomfortable with race swapping, but part of the, and he's talking about Starfire and, and the Titan show. I'm not us, uh, usually uncomfortable with race swapping, but part of the reason Anna Diop's character, casting in Titans doesn't sit well with me is that she has, um, that Starfire has always had a storm ripoff with coded Latina features and a bucket of related stereotypes. Hot tempered, passionate, overtly religious, plus the very 1970s, what's wrong with going nude in this strange society? Uh, Emmanuel Ar- Arzen, libertine, foreigner, op- opportunities. I can't even say the whole damn thing, Frank. Oh my God. It's brilliant, though. Uh, he threw an Emmanuel reference in there. It was just wonderful. And he goes, uh, the cartoon went a long way towards stripping out the more unsavory aspects of the character, but she's still read as a space Latina, and quite frankly, superheroes are in dire need of Latin representation. Um, you know, I, that sort of shocked me, and uh, Martin Gray, I think, was the one who said, uh, did anyone ever read Starfire as Coded Latina? I, I never noticed that. Was that something that everyone just knew and I didn't pick up on it? I, I never did. Okay. All right. I, I'm not. I'm not saying he's wrong. I mean, the the dis, the very stereotypical descriptors he gave does fit her personality. So so maybe I don't know, folks. Did did you guys see that, or is that just a Frank thing? Anyway. So you're, uh, 19 comments later, he says, "Blame it on Ace, but since he went there, my favorite of the later Emmanuels was Natalie Uher from oh the Ahem uh, Formative Six and Allie Hayes from the Emmanuel Through Time series. I like to pretend Emmanuel is a parallel series to the James Bond movies because of the Lazen BTV Rendezvous. What other woman could possibly keep up with 007? Krista Allen is my Timothy Dalton of Emmanuels. I can see why you'd... Uh, be interested, let's say. Uh, I'll, I'll characterize it that <laughs> right. way. But I personally couldn't get into them. So, fair enough. Oh. Again, there's, I, I'm really imagining if I do start uh, cast, like how many comments it's going to inspire on the website. It's going to rival who's who. I, I, I think this is a direction we should avoid, and I'm the one who says she's hot all the time. It's This is a weird world we're in. I, we might really spike the Patreon, I'm just saying. Uh, so so finally, let's let's move on to the... Uh, if, if, if Frank is anti-matter, let's move on to matter, which would be Tim Price. And he says, I know Joe Potato's ridiculous, but that's why I like him. He's a Silver Age Batman, Dick Tracy-style character, and I dig his entry so much fun. Thank you, Tim. Awesome. Next up is Ward Hill Terry. And I'm noticing a pattern here. Frank, 
Ward Hill Terry, Tim Price, we hung out with all of these folks a couple months ago. So That's right. Uh, Ward Hill Terry says, Firestorm, after talking about um, – after talking about a character, Element Girl, whose powers are based on the elements, you kept saying the new Firestorm is a fire elemental. Fire is not an element. Fire <laughs> doesn't burn in outer space or in the sun. Oh, sure. Two guys can get fused into one being and then rearrange molecules in inorganic matter, but my suspension snaps when fire is called an element. Now, to be fair, um, Ward Hill Terry actually teaches science to people, so I will give him credit for that. So that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, and he also says, uh, and then Zoom once again brilliantly shows DC that they already had characters that needed exploration. Yes. Very Not true. wrong there. Nope. Uh, Nicholas Alheim, uh, writer of superhero prose fiction available on Amazon and Patreon, he says a few random thoughts. I really don't get the hate on Angel on and the Ape. Is it cheesecake? Sure. But it's intentional and played as a gag, so I'm not really sure what the problem is. Am I irredeemable now? <laughs> Thank you for picking up the mantle. Uh, it's, it's not hatred. It, believe me, because I love – the entry is sexy. But I, I just felt it went a little too far. And now as I get some distance from that episode because we recorded it like 18 months ago, uh, maybe, maybe I overplayed it. Uh, then he goes on to say, Randy DeBurke's sequential art never worked for me, but here he was an amazing pinup artist with this Lady Shiva as a prime example. But I really don't get her hero tag, especially after her recent appearances in Robin. She's an assassin, even if she does target villains. You know, she's a complicated character. You know, you're because a lot of times she was a hero, a lot of times she was a villain. She's really hard to predict, Nicholas. So I, it, it's hard to pigeonhole her. I think sort of like the Punisher. You know, to some regard, is he a hero or a villain? <laughs> then he says Greg Guler uh, drew the hell out of the Velvet Tiger piece, much as he did out of the Hawk and Dove series. No matter your opinion on the title, he was an amazingly talented comic artist, but pretty much left the industry after the book ended. He moved into animation, has been working at Disney for two and a half decades now, wow. clearly as a key character designer in animation. He was instrumental in designing the look of the Gargoyles cartoon, so comics lost was certainly everyone's gain. Wow, that's amazing. I'm so glad for that because, I mean, I've commented frequently on how much I like his art and who's – I think I even said it earlier on the Madman entry that I like his artwork and uh, I just wish it had been uh, a more interesting comic. But Then we're from buddy Adam Ackerman who goes by Centaurin. He goes, with the angel and the ape, one of the real problems is the pedestal angel is standing on. I know O'Day is her name, but if you didn't know anything before this entry, you're seeing a semi-naked female on a pedestal that says property of. Uh, if, if they had just left that off, it wouldn't have been dramatic, drastically changed. Change the feel of the picture. Hmm. Interesting thought. I hadn't. I hadn't noticed that. Then we heard from a hundredth and hundred and eighth sage. They say Starfire was a pretty meh character for me until Titans, meaning the TV show. And Anna Diop's excellent portrayal was a big reason why I like her in the comics now more than ever. And then uh, hundred and eighth sage goes on to talk about some of the other characters in the TV show. This is Hawk and Dove's first portrayal. Uh, this is the first portrayal on the show where uh, I really feel connected and jive with these characters. Awesome. Talk so much about how much they like Swamp Thing and Krypton, all those kinds of things, Doom Patrol and Young Justice. Woof. So a lot of love for the TV series out there. Uh, Sage also mentions that Mark Hempel is awesome. I used Gregory books one through four as evangelical tracks on how awesome comics were to quite a few friends and acquaintances in high school. That's an interesting choice. I would Gregory does not – it seems a little obscure to me. Uh, but nevertheless, I do really like Mark Hempel. Hmm. All right. Uh, and then uh, move on to uh, comments from Captain Entropy, who should have got a listing in Whoso, I would say. This is uh, Rob. I'm with you. Johnny Thunder was great. Giordano or whoever had the idea that Noir would work again in the shiny on top, seedy on the bottom LA of the 1980s was spot on. 
Thank you, Captain Entropy. Yes, it's a great great character. And Captain Entropy gave us their secret origin. This is my secret origin, my mutant power of sowing chaos and disorder in my wake manifested at an early age. Despite this, I attended a military college where my X factor was even more conspicuous than in other settings. My ability to completely trash an inspection-ready room within five minutes of the inspection being over sparked amazement, occasional outrage, and finally begrudging admiration. One night, while a group of us were shining our shoes to prepare for a long day of training new cadets, the topic of entropy came up. My friend Paul, a fellow comics nerd, said, that's your superpower. You're Captain Entropy. And thus I remain this to my debt to this day. My secret is known only to, well, a lot of people, really, especially after my roommate had the name tag on our door changed. Maybe the story does fit better in the MCU. Oh, wow. Uh, then he says, my who's who origin. When I was a kid, my local supermarket began stocking who's who among their monthly comics. I bought them. I enjoyed them. Now, wasn't that thrilling? Yeah, I kind of liked it. <laughs> and then he says, a final, even more belated comment. Philemon, I genuinely appreciate your recommendation on The Butcher, despite your love of Jericho. However, <laughs> however, I still want I still want to wait for the inevitable team-up series with the baker and the candlestick maker. Ah, you know, that's a good one. based on that joke alone, I really, for a moment, thought Captain Entropy was uh, an Ange pseudonym. <laughs> it could be because Captain Entropy has insisted on uh, remaining anonymous, so you mm-hmm. never know. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, all right, folks, we are now at the point, and we've been we've been talking about it here where we have to say how much we appreciate uh, Zoom. You can always work specifically in Zoom's who uh, Zoom. You can always addendum to the definitive director of the DC Universe. He's been providing us with custom who's who entries. Wow, for several several years now, and has collected them into a book. And uh, we are going to look at one of them here. Uh, and by the way, you can also get your own who's who coffee mug out on Red. Bubble, just look for Professor Zoom. So, Rob, do you want to walk us through the squid? Yes, this list thing is the squid. Now, uh, despite the name, the squid is not an Aquaman villain. What? Uh, he's, I know, you would think from the name. Uh, and you'll see this listing on uh, the gallery post over on firewaterpodcast.com. This uh, listing for the squid is a Zoom Yukonori original. Sometimes he is aping other artists or sort of basing what he's doing off of some poses or some other work you've seen. But this one is solely the work of Zoom, I guess, because uh, – well, I mean the squid only made two appearances. Uh, his first appearance was in Detective Comics number <laughs> – one more than I expected. <laughs> yeah, right. Detective <laughs> Comics 497. Well, the, 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 OK. This gives you an idea how obscure the squid is. He doesn't even get listed on Mike's Amazing World. If you Ooh. yeah, if you look up the comic book that he first appeared in, which is Detective Comics four ninety seven, Mike doesn't even give him a listing as villain, um, and so he was created by Jerry Conway, and and then he drawn by Don Newton, and he comes back um, in Detective Comics five twenty four, where he is summarily killed off by Killer Croc. So basically he's just a crime lord. Uh, I mean he has like this squid that he can throw people into and that's just – that's like his shtick. And he looks more like um, kind of Tweedledum or Tweedledee, like he's the shortest shortest squat guy with this big uh, flaming red hair and these checkered pants. Um, you, well, you know, and, you, and the hair is shaved all around the sides too. Right. Which is really you could odd. sort of – if they put him in a movie, you could picture him played by like Patton Oswalt or something. Uh, <laughs> I mean he really – he's kind of really just like a, a – a, Spinning the dial on the penguin, uh, for the most part. I mean, I don't mean to, to to begrudge Jerry Conway's creation because, of course, Jerry created a lot of great alternate characters, including Killer Croc, who I just mentioned. Uh, but I mean, it's a good story. The one that I read. I mean, it's fun. He doesn't even. I again, I think how much it shows you how much the, the squid was consigned to uh, the back matter of DC Comics is that on, in the first issue that he appears in, they the cover focuses on the Batgirl backup. 
It doesn't oh, even okay. really bother to could they're like the squid doesn't even get the cover. You know, even though he's a new villain. Uh, but anyway, Zoom's listing is really remarkable. He came oh up my with God, his, stunning. He, he came up with his own logo for the squid, and it's the the logo is great because it's got like all the little tentacles on it, and it's you the see su- the suckers from the suction. Yeah, the, pit, right, yeah. right. The suction cups. So you see the squid on the left hand side. He's got a, he's got his handgun, and then the serpent is a big close up, and then there's another thing where Batman is being dunked into the squid tank, uh, and Batman's upside down. It's just. It's just gorgeous. I mean, you just look at this. I you mentioned looking at the the, the Zooms Who book uh, earlier, and I looked at it tonight to reread this listing, and it's like God, this this thing just fills me with joy. This book, as I just page, not just because I'm in it, but just because it's just <laughs> it's so beautifully done. Uh, he Zoom just gets all the all the bells and whistles right. It's just a great thing. So check out this listing for the Squid. It is a shame that uh, he got murdered by. Killer Croc, because I mean, obviously, with that name, he would be a perfect Aquaman villain, and Aquaman needs all the villains he can get. But uh, I guess it was not to be. Well, we've talked about before how sometimes uh, a who's who entry comes along for a mort, and the who's who entry itself is so spectacular yes, that yes. it brings the character back to the forefront and starts getting more appearances simply because the who's who was so good and got people's attention. If this squid entry had actually made it into a who's who, I think the squid would have got more appearances out of it because it's a such the art the art is so captivating. It looks so cool. I like the surprint of his face. It's just amazing. It's like a almost like an upshot like you're kind of lower and you're looking up at him and he's looking off to the right and the lighting is just hitting him just right with the with the cross hatching lines. It just looks fantastic. Oh my gosh, yep. I love it. It's wonderful. All right. Well, folks, uh, thanks again, Zoom, for that another entry in Zooms who uh, absolutely adore those. So we are now going to thank everyone who shared our show on their social media timeline. Again, we talked about earlier the iTunes reviews really help. Well, so does sharing the show on Facebook and Twitter. All you got to do, folks, is go out on Twitter and hit retweet, and you'll be on this list. Or Facebook, hit the share button. I know it sounds like a long list, like reading the phone book. But again, these folks are doing their part to help spread the word and help this community grow. So our thanks to... Al Girding, Batman Family Chronicles Facebook group, Between the Pages, Billy Delicious, <laughs> I love that, uh, Bob Joe Kim, Chris Franklin, Coffee and Comics Podcast, Comic Reflections, Dale Russell, David Capoon, DC Comics Fans Facebook group, Dr. Ange, Dr. Pop Culture Bo- uh, from the Bowling Green State University, Green Lantern HG, and then a whole series of these Facebook groups. I am number one Batman fan. I am number one Robin fan. I am number one Tim Drake fan. Uh, I am number the... one Squid fan. Right. Exactly. Well, that's good. The next one, of course. Uh, into the Weird. It's Plastic Man. Justice Trek 2019. Long Box of Darkness. Matthias McBride. Max Romero. Michael Kramer. Michael Dynas. Nancy Northcutt. Paul Kian. I had lunch with Paul. Awesome. Uh, Rain Within Smoke. Read More Comics. World Spine Podcast. Ryan Daly. Scott X. Sentinel Liberty Podcast. Siskoid. The 108th Sage. The Mirror Factory. The Voice of Paul. Tim Drake Podcast. Tim Price. Tom Panneries. Warlock Thanos Podcast. Willie Yarborough. Xenozoic Xenophiles. And Zeb Oswalt. Oof. All right. Fantastic. Now, folks, as a reminder, we are going to post some of these entries, including the Zoom 2 entry, out on our website. Rob, what's that URL? fireandwaterpodcast.com. Yep, and look for the gallery post. So that is it. Issue number 11 in the books. We are done. So next issue, oh, well, there's not really anyone of importance next issue. <laughs> yes, it's it's the Aquaman issue, of course. You you all forget that from Shag's joke. Yes, it's the Aquaman issue. Finally, Aquaman appears in Who's Who. Plus Aquaman Mira. and and Mira and yep, Mira, yes. Both yes. of them are in the issue. Yep. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We also get the Metal Men. Mr. Freeze. And from the JLI, we're going to get Blue Jay and Silver Sorceress and Nort. 
Zatanna, The Suicide Squad, Lois Lane, Hawkwoman, and The Blasters. So, uh, you know, can't all be winners. <laughs> all right, folks, looking forward to that next episode. So, until next time, who's, who's next? Who's next? Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Dishink and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC. Who's who? Oh man, we forgot Slipknot. We can still stop Despero, but you and Nort are going to have to follow my orders to the letter. Now look, Bats, you can hatch all the plans you want, but from here on in, Guy Gardner's working alone. You so much as sneeze without my permission, you're going to regret it. That I'd like to see. One punch. <laughs> One punch. Get him on his feet. <sighs> Just for the record, I let you do that.